Podcasting, the remarkably crowded frontier. These are the conversations of two brothers and their mom. Their 13-episode mission to explore strange old movies, to seek out new bits and new jokes, to boldly go where no mom has gone before. Welcome to this month's episode of Where No Mom Has Gone Before, a Night Shift Radio original. I, once again, am your captain, Casey Ryan. With me, my commander, Colin Ryan. Hello. And, oh, again, Admiral on the bridge, we have (laughs) our mother. I put it in in post, man. You don't need to do it. Now here comes the the fun of me trying to sync up the actual bosun's whistle with you. Ah, yes. Love a challenge. Yeah. Uh, Admiral on the bridge, we have our mother, Laura Ryan. Good evening, everyone. Hi, Mom. Hi, Tom. Or good morning, good afternoon. We don't know when they're going to be listening to this pod. It's evening for us. All all uh, podcasts are listened to while washing dishes at night. I thought that was the rule. Now that nobody commutes to work anymore, right? (laughs) That's very true. Well, technically, all podcasts are stuck in a temporal vortex. Uh, no, time no, dress. no, no. We did no. We did t- a place where time has no meaning. Last time, we're not getting stuck no. there again. No, please, God, no. All podcasts exi- Mom, exist. Don't in the touch Nexus. your record button. <laughs> this is not the Nexus. No. Oh. Um, <laughs> though I, I, I do want to say, uh, hey, it was fun to watch a Star Trek movie that wasn't like taking a couple Valium. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is like slightly less somberific. And comedy oh, and sex. Yeah, Data gets it yeah. on for the first time in eight years. Eight well, years. does he though? We'll get there. But I. Yeah, we'll get oh, there. I definitely to to fulfill the ruse. I think he does. Yeah. <laughs> Alex Krieg um, just returned as the Borg Queen on Lower Decks. Oh, fun! They're really pulling up the old. Um, that just to timestamp the episode for when we're recording it, season two just ended, and they brought back. Do you remember the engineering ensign that poured the coffee on Picard? In Best of Both Worlds? No, earlier than that. Q-Who. It was prob- yeah, maybe Q-Who. She's, she's also, I know it's a Borg uh, episode. Yeah, she's Dixie also in um, Lethal Weapon. Nah, she's the prostitute that's... I don't okay. remember that. They brought her back. She's a captain. Nice. <laughs> and like somebody tripped on the bridge. And I'm like, wow, this name is really familiar. And someone trips on the bridge. It's like, oh, God. I'm so sorry. He goes, no, I've done much worse in front of captains. I was like, to the internet. Oh, uh, my God. It's her. And it's actually her. It's the actress doing the voice, too. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I do need to dig more into that show because I gather it's basically made by fans. Oh, yes. It is. It is the perfect line of Trek is awesome and Trek's a bit silly. But it's all done with love. Like, yeah. there's never been a point where it felt mocking. It always like, remember this kind of silly thing that we did once? Like, <laughs> they had the skeleton of giant Spock in one episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. From the animated series. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all canon on that show. It's so great. <laughs> but we are not here to talk about Lower Decks. We are here to talk about Star Trek First Contact. Directed by the wonderful Jonathan Frakes. Uh, it was his first film directing. He directed TV. I was going to say, a very a very auspicious start for a, uh, a very auspicious theatrical debut. Very assured. 
Yeah, and very like, hey, you're going to have to handle action and comedy and heavy effects and, Mm -hmm. you know, effects that we're just learning how to do, which for the most part hold up. Except for the ship at the end that lands on Earth. That was where I went, hey, that was CG. Well, you know, this was was pretty solid. So the, the, we, you know, the film, we didn't mention this, uh, comes out in 1996. It's a Thanksgiving release, 1996. Uh, and it really kind of exists at that hinge point between, you know, the end of the all practical era and the beginning of the CGI era. And I did, I, this is just completely telling on my age, but I remember saying to Elizabeth after watching it, it really is comfort food for me to watch a movie from that era. Just feels right. It's like, right, this is this is what movies are supposed to look like. You know? You're seeing, that was your freshman year in college, right? Yeah, yeah. This would have been uh, my first semester in college it came out. Now, we always talk about whether or not we saw this in the theater. Mm-hmm. I did not. I skipped really? this because of how boring Generations was. We didn't all see it on Thanksgiving break or something? No, this is one we didn't for some reason. I distinctly remember somebody gave me a recorded off of HBO, sorry, Colin, version of this. And I was like, and they're like, no, it's really good. It's, and I'm like, how good is it compared to Generations, which I didn't really care for? I've ebbed and flowed on that movie. I'm definitely in the ebb is that where it's yeah bad <laughs> um but uh, i remember popping it in and it starts and you know there's the borg cube and all this stuff and i was like oh okay already this is a much much better movie yeah every time i watch this i'm reminded of that first time i watched it on uh, the tv at uh, farmington okay yeah so i mean i thought i saw it in the theater but maybe i I must have. You may have. You may have seen it. May have with gone with some, people from college or something. Yeah. Yeah, because I definitely didn't. Never saw this in the theater. I'm actually hoping that because they keep doing the anniversaries of all the movies, the next big anniversary for this, I'm hoping they re-release it in the theaters, and I will. That would be nice. Totally yeah. go see it. Yeah. This this is a movie that deserves to be seen on the big screen. Also, it's very cinematic. Whereas, mom, if you maybe maybe you saw it. I don't remember us going to the movies that first. And when you came home at Thanksgiving, because you were working. Probably, yeah. Probably. Yeah, that, that's very true. We should probably talk about some of the production stuff that got into this. I'm sure you've got some stuff, Colin. I've got, um, I remember when we were talking about Generations, I mentioned this that the Enterprise D would be the last time we see a practical ship. Mm-hmm. I'm very wrong. They built this ship, too. This is a practical. It is. This is the last time it's all. It's it's at all practical. Right, because in Insurrection and in Nemesis, uh, the Enterprise is CG, which yeah. makes no sense. You have the model right it's, there. It's still, you know, it, it makes plenty of sense. It, by that point, you've crested over into it's cheaper to to use uh, computer animation. That model shots are extremely time-consuming and very difficult to set up. They take but forever. Man, oh man, are they beautiful. That's, they are. I think I remember reading that the only model they made up was the Enterprise. Everything else was CG. Sure, that would make sense. The Borg Cube would, would be, I mean, to be able to be for um, film, it would have to be a higher resolution. To make a new Borg Cube would be ridiculous. Oh, and pro- well, what's the Defiant? A model on Deep Space Nine, or was... I don't know. Huh. That is something I did not research, whether or not... Because we, we get, you know... We get uh, guest appearances from both of the uh, Star Trek TV series that are on the air at the time. Yes. Now, how- yeah, we get Worf, right. who's technically on Deep Space Nine for a year and a half at this point. Has he been on that long? Yeah. 
Yeah, Way of the Warrior had happened like in 95. Okay. So, so. yeah, this would have aired during the middle of his second season, right? Yeah, and I, I distinctly remember the episode when watching Deep Space Nine for the first time, they went from the jumpsuits to what they wear in this. They went, oh, First Contact must have come out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. suddenly... Everyone's wearing much, much nicer uniforms. These no, no hand-me-down these, uniforms in this. And these may be my favorite uniform. Well, I want to know why Captain Picard, or Admiral, or whatever he is, doesn't have more. He's than, captain. Captain doesn't have more than one stripe sleeves. Because that is just showing what uh, ops they're in, or what uh, the, the department. Yeah, yeah, the red. If you look, everyone's got the one stripe. It's it, it's pips only. Yeah, the rank is indicated by the collar pips. Sure, and they'll come back. We'll, we'll just wait two movies. We'll get the stripes again. <laughs> when we go back to the Kelvin universe. There's something here that I'm reading. It said, Paramount wanted ships that would look different from a distance, so the director devised multiple hull, hull profiles. Pro, Noel, and Jaeger had decided that the ships had to obey certain Star Trek precedents with saucer-like primary hull and elongated warp nacelles and yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I have a couple notes about the uh, the beautiful Enterprise E, a sovereign class. Um, first, it was designed by by a designer, John Eaves. He wanted the ship to be sleeker than the Enterprise D. Congratulations, you succeeded. Uh, he took inspiration from Walter M. Jeffrey's original design for the Enterprise, old school for the original series. Uh, you showed the initial design to Rick Sternbach, who had just finished designing Voyager. And if you have ever seen a picture of Voyager and now look, look at the Enterprise E, they have the same kind of like the uh, deflector dish just kind of cuts off the saucer section. Yeah. And then, There's not much of a so neck on it. Yeah, very similar look to both of them, and they were they had not discussed it. It just happened that they both had the same kind of design. And it made sense because Starfleet moving to new kinds of ships, they have the same kind of feel. So they, they very much enjoyed that part of it. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> they sent a prototype to Playmates so they could make the toys. We are once again where the toys get screwed over. Uh, as we were talking about in Generations, they sent the uniforms that were never actually used. And Playmates made the Sovereign class USS Enterprise-E, and uh, then they fiddled with it and what you see on screen. And if you bought the Enterprise-E from Star Trek First Contact, not the same. I mean, it's not uncommon. The lead time for sure. for CP, uh, consumer product stuff, is so much longer than everything mm-hmm. else uh, that you really do. And, and a lot of that has been cleaned up now. They've shortened some of those lead times and things like that. But it's you're make having to make those toys and collectibles and things like that during the making of the film. And uh, Sure. Uh, so and the, the Borg Cube was a model. It was... Um, oh, really? Both the Cube and the Sphere are models. Wow. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This movie really exists at that wonderful hinge point where they're still doing a lot practical and sweetening around the edges with digital. And... I mean, I think we'll jump ahead. I guess we, while we're just sort of talking effects, we should jump ahead to what I think is maybe one of the greatest melds of practical and digital in film history. Because after this, it starts just becoming all digital, which is the Borg Queen's entrance. 
Oh my God! It's so lowering hot. her in and dropping her there. It's it's. I mean, it's practical. They're really floating her. They're green screening out the bottom of her body, but there's also the digital. It's it's just so of the spine is up. Yeah. The spine itself and the clamps are are a mix of practical and digital. I mean, you just really you have to go in and and fine tune brush to figure out what's what, and that's how it should mm-hmm. be, right? Absolutely. And it just it's is so such good. an amazing effect. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and it's one of those effects that is not for like, look what we did. It's just, we're doing this. No, this, this is. Well, it's, it's, it's look it, what's going on. I mean, it's, a, it's an effect in the service of telling you everything you need to know about this character and her first entrance, right? Yeah, I've got some questions about uh, the Borg Queen, but we'll, we'll wait till we actually get to a certain point in the movie. Sure. <laughs> Since we haven't even started talking about no. the movie. So the. the um, do, Go ahead. You know, the movie was in development pretty soon after Generations. Same script writers, Moore and Braga, write this. And mm-hmm. they have said that they looked at it as a chance to uh, redeem themselves after the script for Generations. Congratulations. You 100% did it. <laughs> and there were a lot of ideas about... Basically, there were two two competing ideas, time travel and the Borg. And somebody said, put those hands together. Um, and you got your time travel Borg story, but at certain point there was a the, the Borg were going to go. I guess Rick Berman wanted them to go to the Renaissance and stop the the Renaissance, um, and there was going to be like fights in a castle with swords and phasers. God, Berman, shut up! It's <laughs> he probably wanted some bodice ripping. That's why he wanted to do that. I mean, it doesn't strike me as a, as something that wouldn't have. It just would have gotten kind of cheesy and and tongue in cheek pretty fast you would have been making the the big budget version of of Cupid yeah totally which for those who don't know is the episode where Q turns everybody into Robin Hood sir i protest i am not a merry man so eventually uh the idea of bringing it to the uh, to the first contact to the birth of the federation or as they were putting it the birth of star trek uh, comes mm-hmm. along because uh, this was this film was also 1996, which is the 30th anniversary for Star Trek. Yeah, so it was sort of tied into anniversary celebrations. It's also the first film since the motion picture to have nobody from the original cast. Not well, that. But what else do you think it is the first film since motion picture? Oh, dude. Well, what we're we talking rating? It is the first film since the motion picture to cost as much. As the motion picture. <laughs> it is the first one to exceed the budget of Star Trek the motion picture. What was the budget on this? I saw both 45 and 47 million. Even so, 40, 45 or 47, under $50 million budget on this thing, and it looks like it does. And made 146. Yeah, damn. Well, it should have. It's yeah. so good. But yeah, it's the first time that they, they went back up to that that budget range. But yeah, Casey, you were alluding to another first. It's the first move. It's the first Star Trek movie to be rated PG 13. Yeah. And I think they're all PG 13 from here on out. Sure. Cause PG 13 gets muddled around a lot now. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I really think uh, I've complained about this on super pot hero cast, but there needs to be a rating in between PG 13 and R like they have in Canada. Oh, I, I guess I didn't know the Canadians had that. Well, yeah, yeah they've got one in between their R and their PG thirteen. It's like a seven. It's like a, like PG thirteen is eighteen and like uh, it's like eighteen plus, and then they have like a fifteen, which yeah. most of like your uh, 
like your end game and your though those PG thirteen with faceless monsters that are just killed at whim. I'm like, those should be 15. Well, because yeah, because it's PG, still mass murder. PG-13 winds up being all the violence of R with none of the none of the cursing or nudity. And <laughs> as long as you can't see their face and they're not human, you don't get an R rating. Yeah. Oh, and there's no blood, right? No, yeah, or very, very little. Like uh, Avengers 1, when Loki stabs Coulson, yeah, yeah. they kept getting an R rating and they kept having to like change the position and do all these crazy things to... To stop the R rating. So, did you find anything about why exactly this was a PG thirteen? Is it just general Borg scariness, or um, I'd say right in the first thirty seconds of this film is what gives it is PG thirteen with the Borg implant uh, popping out of John Luke's face. That's yeah. pretty damn scary. Well, before that, there's the. The eye, yeah, yeah. No, which don't touch, don't oh, touch yeah, eyes. Was, which oh. is the uh, Bunel and and Dali tribute. The, the, uh, Dali and Bunel made this film in the twenties called Unshin Andalou, um, where it's a close up of an eye getting cut by a razor blade. Oh, oh God, no, that's, that's <laughs> no. <laughs> and it really feels like that's I, a bit of a tribute to that. That's got to be CG, right? They've got to be doing something with like when, a fake eye. When the when, when it the, touches when the it eye? touches the eye, yeah, I think that's a CG shot. It's great. It's inc- and you mean for this, yeah. it wasn't for the one shot. That no, no, no. I don't no. know how they did on Machine on the Loop. I don't. Um, I don't want. They probably cut someone's eye. No. Yeah. Right. Um, and of course. Yeah. But yeah, um, well, if it is practical, it sure ain't Pat Stu's, uh <laughs> No, I don't. I don't think it's practical, but it's um, it's you know, it's perfect. It, it's a great start. It, it's such an easy route to show b- body violation, right? We're also sensitive about the eye, uh-huh. and and there's a lot of it in this movie, body violation, but also eye violation. There's later we see a crewman get with like a half a Bork implant in her eye. I'm like Jonathan, please stop. It's gross. I thought that the dream thing was great because it was it. it People, when he got up and started washing his face, people thought, "Okay, it's over." And then it it wasn't. It was it was like two dreams. It was wild. It was our first jump scare, a true jump scare in a uh, Star Trek movie. Okay, so oh, wow. are we gonna? So Casey and I saw mm-hmm. a tweet that that Casey uh, responded to with the uh, official Twitter for the podcast that somebody was would willing to die on the hill that this is a Halloween movie. It is. Or was it a, that it was a horror movie? It is a horror movie. I mean, certainly parts of it are. And I went back and watched Best of Both Worlds and Q Who. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about this, but I think basically this fun- functions as a direct sequel to those. Oh, yeah. Kind of skipping all the other Borg stuff that happens. Yeah, there's no dissent mention. Like, yeah. Once they deactivate Lore on the series, he is never mentioned again. And he could yeah. be out there and they don't know about it. But anyway, the, the Borg there do not there's less of a a sense that they absorb people mm-hmm. this sense that like if they get you you become one of them in other words the zombie fa- effect right right they're total space robo zombies yeah they're much more zombie like here and yeah there's definitely i mean clearly frakes is working on a from a horror playbook for large sections of this sure ever i mean you could go as far as to say john lucas the final girl 
I would John Luke is the what? Final girl uh, in, in all horror films, pretty much from the seventies or eighties. Slashers, slashers Not. specifically. Yeah, they had one girl that they knew was going to survive, and she's always like, "My God, I can't believe I've survived this." And it's you know, it's John Luke in this. It's oh, J- Jamie okay. Lee Curtis in Halloween. Yeah, is the I don't prototypical like kind of movies. And I, but, and I didn't. But when I say I, this, didn't bother me. But when we say Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, you understand what we're saying. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Or Jamie no, it's, Curtis it's, in Prom Night. Or Jamie, well, you know, <laughs> we could be here a while with Jamie. I think it's horror, Jason. I wouldn't call it a straight-up horror movie because there's so no. much else going on. And, in fact, I had forgotten, just to get the movie started itself, uh, and, and my very first note is, boy, that opening score is gorgeous. I love The main theme for this film is yep. just beautiful. Won uh, an Academy, they won an Academy Award. Did this win the Academy Award? For the best score, did, I, I bet you oh, it was really? nominated, but I don't know if it won. It was nominated for best makeup. Sure, because with the Borg, you have you don't you're not just Borgifying someone. I mean, in this movie, we get a Cardassian Borg, a Klingon Borg, and a Bolian Borg. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was a Bolian. A what? A, uh, Bolian, blue face, split down the middle, with like an actual crease in their face. The the uh, hair Mr. Mott. Mr. Mott, yeah, the hairdresser. On remember, Picard, remember Picard's uh, hairdresser on Star Trek The Next Generation? The recurring character the, named Mr. Mott. The absolute gall on that guy to be like, yes, I'm going to say all these things to a bald man. Like, like taking that long to cut his hair. It's especially since as Jean Luc, he just does like a like a two trim on it, and that's it. Okay. It wasn't an Academy Award. He won the BMI Film and TV Award okay. for Best Music. It's Jerry Goldsmith again, right? It is yeah. Jerry Goldsmith. He yes. won the NAAC Image Awards. Rick Berman, <sighs> Best Sci-Fi. Rick Berman. Patrick Stewart. It's listed as Best Sci-Fi Fantasy Horror Actor. Because a sci-fi and fantasy. It's all, that's a category. Yeah, they all get lumped together uh, okay. and it. Alice won. Patrick won. Alex Rick Krieg won. Great. She's wonderfully terrifying in this. Best actress, yeah. She would not return for the, the Borg Queen's appearance in the first time she appears on Voyager, but she does come back for the finale. And then she comes back again on Lower Decks, and now there's someone new playing her on the, you know, spoilers for the Picard trailer, but uh, the Borg Queen, I guess, is back. Uh, again, again, uh, again. Well, I mean, well, I don't. Theoretically, the Borg Queen should have different bodies, right? The should, Borg Queen is so should have, be a, a, this construct within the collective. It's a nice bit of hand wave when they get to that, where they try to explain the different. You know, is she separate from the collective? And she just goes, shh, 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 don't, "Don't think about it too much. <laughs> Please let me continue to seduce you." <laughs> Is there more than one Borg cube? Oh, yeah. there's mm-hmm. ton- it, it, In Voyager, I guess we go to the Borg homeworld, and it's like a whole intricate, like, literally looks like a, a, a beehive. Okay. Type oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, there's tons of Borg cubes. Oh, remember okay, when so- we couldn't think of what this whole battle at the beginning of this was, Colin? Uh, it's the Battle of Section 001. 001. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just like, of course it is. Well, on, on Earth, when he said it's, he said, made the statement, 
thick 900 million all bored. Is it one big cube or is everybody just walking around as a board? Everyone's walking around as a board. Yeah. The entire Earth is. So they, they assimilate whole planets and then the cubes are just what are sent out to do the assimilating. Well, they either assimilate uh, or in Guinan's case, they just destroy the planet. Right. But how do they walk around? Don't they have to be connected? Nope. To be one with the... Well, why, why do they keep going in these the, those weird are, things and clicking themselves in? So those are the regeneration chambers. They they pretty much run on a battery, so they have to recharge. That's eating and sleeping, and because they don't have any individual life, they just do that whenever they don't have some work to do. Right. right? They eat? No, that well, is no, that's, eating. That's the equivalent of eating, oh, that's and, their sleeping eating and sleeping. And, okay, okay, okay. Unless we have anything else, I think we can go into the uh, shakedown of the movie itself. Let's do it. All right. In the 24th century, Captain Jean-Luc Picard wakes from a nightmare in which he relived his assimilation by the cybernetic Borg six years earlier. He is contacted by Admiral Hayes, who informs him of a new Borg threat against Earth. Picard's orders are for his ship, USS Enterprise, to patrol the neutral zone in case of Romulan aggression. The Romulans! There has been no unusual activity along the Romulan border for the last nine months. Starfleet is worried that Picard is too emotionally involved with the Borg to join the fight. First, let's let's talk about, after the nightmare, the beautiful establishing shot of the Enterprise-E. Like, first time we see it, well, it's it, a full shot of it, and they're like, look at how beautiful this ship is. Yeah. It's so nice. And then the same thing when they all go to the bridge in a second. It's this really, really subtle... Sweeping shot, Frakes lets us see the entire new Enterprise E bridge without being like, here's the Enterprise E bridge. It's just kind of like, I'm going to move the camera. Do they go to the bridge first or the conference room? They're in the conference room. I'm talking about after this when they when they get the message. I did have a conference room scene, which if I recall, there were none in Generations. There are no conference room scenes. You're right. But the this Enterprise E conference room is the D. Because it was one of the only right. sets that wasn't destroyed. It's the same set and it's redressed. But I'm just, I just was excited because if you watch Star Trek The Next Generation, oh. conference room scenes are very important. There are so many of these conference room scenes. And it's just like, ah, oh, there they are. They're sitting around the table having a, having a meeting. Well, because Star Trek The Next Generation is an is a office workplace show. I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The next scene, yeah. doesn't it? Isn't that where he's listening to the music? That's his ready room. That's his ready room. Okay, but that the way he they had him in reflection in the window there, and then Frakes comes in, and the two of them together. I just thought that was I thought that was really nice. Yeah, yeah no, I mean he, it's, he, it's very visually mm-hmm. interesting from the beginning here. I mean, Jonathan Frakes is a very visually interesting director. He loved his uh, god shots. He loves swooping in. It's all here, and he's like now that he has like film um, cameras and has a bit more of a budget. He definitely shows off his his director's eye a lot more. Like, yeah, he'd done similar shots like that on Next Gen episodes that he directed. But Picard looking out in, into space and Riker just kind of coming into frame. It's such a cool shot. You're right, Mom. You say? Berlioz. But it's from an opera called Le Troyans, and uh, it's a homesick young sailor being rocked to sleep by the seas. He dreams of the homeland he will never see again. Oh, how appropriate. Aww. 
except he's not well, rocking. Apropos. Well, no, because the artificial gravity's on, so he's not going to yeah. rock anywhere. We finished our first sensor sweep of the neutral zone. Oh, fascinating. 20 particles of space dust per cubic meter, 52 ultraviolet radiation spikes, and a class 2 comet. Wow, this is certainly worthy of our attention. We have a new member of our bridge crew. Hawk. Played by the wonderful Neil McDonough. An extremely young Neil McDonough. Uh, pre him being blacklisted from Hollywood for a hot second. Oh, I didn't know about that. Uh, during when he was on Damages, I just listened to him on uh, Michael Rosenbaum's podcast. Very religious man, but not in a weird way. Like, well, a couple times he's like, you know, I just had to have the faith of God. I wasn't like, Ugh. yeah. Just the way he said it, it didn't seem like he's like, I have to have the face of faith of God, and you should too. Yeah, right. It didn't feel like that. So. Uh, but uh, he has never done a kissing scene. He's much like, uh, was it Roy Rogers who did the same thing? I don't know about that. Wouldn't kiss anyone but his wife. Interesting. So he kind of got blacklisted. And then they said, oh, what if we just let him play villains? That's exactly what it was. Yeah, Justified was what oh, yeah. kind of brought him back into the limelight. I never saw that. He was a wonderful villain on uh, Legends of Tomorrow for a long time, yeah. and he's just uh, oh yeah, and he's in he's in Brand of Brothers. He's been he's been in a million mm-hmm. things. He was. I'm terribly sorry. That's what brought him back was Band of Brothers. Uh, um, then he got justified. And I I do recall the first time being somewhat. I think because I knew Worf had moved on, right? And though I knew Worf <laughs> was in this, I was somewhat taken in by the swerve. I was like, oh, is this going to be a new character who joins us for the rest of these? Oh, no, he's a red shirt. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's goner. He's a goner. He's, he, he's total Borg fodder. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. Well, Picard I, had a red shirt on the whole movie. I know, but it's just well, that a red shirt. That little vest of his, that little vest he uh, had. That was oh, yes. Nice. We, we, we will once he puts the vests on. I'm like, ah, and thus begins Patrick Stewart's very, very slow strip cheese for the rest of the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are the Borg are keeping things very warm. That's true. Um, yeah, thirty-seven point thirty-eight, nine point seven. So it's around uh, like almost a hundred degrees, maybe a little less. Oh, thirty-nine centigrade. Yeah, it's like is... in the eighties. Wasn't that what it was? 39? 102 degrees. Yeah. So, And considering you have to figure everyone's wearing all those layers like uh, Picard is, I'm just like, guys, take it all off. It's hot. It is good. The slow, like, everybody stays sweaty and starts getting disheveled throughout. It really does help set the mood. It's a little bit of some of the um, the little bits of DNA of, like, a- like aliens. And- mm-hmm. That sort of grimy sweatiness that builds up in this, but um, yeah. In fact, when there's a shot in a minute when they're in engineering after Paul, poor Paul, rest in peace, gets borged, uh, and yeah. whoever that ever other engineer pops up, I'm like, ah, she is sweaty. But now yeah. it's 102 degrees. Of course she is. <laughs> uh, any other thoughts about about the? I mean, I do love. I just think that opening shot is so amazing. Um, and again, like the, a perfect mix of practical, you know, they actually bring the camera back 50 feet or so off of Patrick Stewart and then switch into a matte painting yeah. and then switch into a digital as they keep pulling out and out and out. And it's just such a great opening. It's, it sets up a sense of scale and a sense of, of just a cinematic language that really, I mean, and 
it's been missing from even the best of the original series ones, which sure. were, remember, shot by the, the Paramount television department, right? So right. they look like very well shot television in a lot of ways, and this looks like a movie. Well, I think it sure there's, does. there's another scene later on that really, really it goes to scale. Mm-hmm. Which we'll discuss. Uh, I do want to point out... Captain, why are we out here chasing comets? Let's just say that Starfleet has every confidence in the Enterprise and her crew. They're just not sure about her captain. They believe that a man who was once captured and assimilated by the Borg should not be put in a situation where he would face them again. To do so would introduce an unstable element to a critical situation. But, you know, it's interesting. It, it does make... As a setup, it does make a somewhat of a nice change from the Enterprise is the only ship in the sector. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The Enterprise is the only ship not in the sector. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it does set up what I something I remember thinking as I was watching this film again. And I've seen this movie half a dozen times before this, but sure. probably haven't watched it in 10 years. The setup that Picard is going to get obsessed and go a little off the deep end is so carefully and subtly done yeah. that eventually Starfleet actually kind of has a bit of a point here, right? Mm-hmm. That he isn't emotionally ready to deal with the Borg. That's ridiculous. Your experience with the Borg makes you the perfect man to lead this fight. Admiral Hayes disagrees. And like we were saying, it kind of requires you to ignore a lot of, of post-best-of-both-worlds Borg episodes. Specifically Descent, like... Yeah, but you can hand wave that, okay, so he dealt with one Borg and I Borg, and he dealt with a little breakaway group. This is the first time up against a full cube, the The full force, the collective, right? It's a bit of a buy-in required if you have watched the rest of the series, A, to keep it accessible to people who didn't watch the series, and Mm -hmm. B, just for those stakes, I'm willing to make that buy-in because they make it work, right? Yeah. Speaking of I Borg, I just remembered when we watched that episode... And I guess we can count Iborg because Picard purposely keeps himself away from Hugh yeah. until finally he's like, fine, I'll talk to him. And he walks in the room. And, Mom, I don't know if you remember you, that you did this, but Hugh's like, the cutest. And Picard goes, yes. And Mom gasped because mm-hmm. she, she didn't catch the con that was happening. She thought it was like, oh, my God, he's been a sleeper agent this whole time. <laughs> Do you remember doing that, Mom? No. Because you were like, and then he starts talking, and you're like, oh, that's why. He's he's messing with you. He's not actually uh, the cutest. I did read this that apparently, by way of explaining why only Worf is on the Defiant, he's literally the only character we know from uh, Deep Space Nine who's on the Defiant. Yeah. Uh, there was going to be that Starfleet was also concerned that Cisco, who fans of Deep Space Nine know, was widowed. At the Battle of Wolf three five nine, and 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 was at the Battle of Wolf three five nine at best of both worlds. That yep. he was also emotionally unprepared to deal with the Borg. So let's send Worf <laughs> because Worf was the senior most Deep Space Nine uh, Starfleet member who had also not served that long under Cisco. So they, you know, but all of that just it would have was been not Kira. Right, she was the but, first officer. Well, but basically, they just said, "No, we don't need to. We don't need to explain any of that." Well, they were also going to destroy the Defiant, and the showrunner for uh, Deep Space Nine is like, "The hell you are! All right, we so have the, a ship. All right, so <laughs> Get, take it from us. The Defiant helmsman. It's Adam Scott. <laughs> it's Adam Scott. 
Okay. I went. What's that voice? Oh my God, that's Adam Scott. An incredibly so, young Adam Scott. I know he can't be more than twenty or something in this, right? Like he doesn't even to the point where he doesn't even look like Adam Scott. He's he got one like, line. Report. Main power's offline. We've lost shields. Our weapons are gone. So, do, Mom, do you know who Adam Scott is? No, I don't. So, Parks and Recreation. No. Uh, the Good Place. Nope. Um, <laughs> he's so good in The Good Place. Party down. Know. You would know. You would know him because he's been in a million other things. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it may be like his film debut. I want to say it is. I feel like I listened to an interview with him where he talked about that. That like this was one of his very very first things, and he was incredibly excited, and he got to be there for, of course, Worf to say his most famous line. Perhaps today is a good day to die. If I was at Helmsman, I'd be like, oh, great. I got the suicidal uh, commander. Great. Prepare for running speed! He'd had a few films before this, but this is, um, this is, yeah. So, Mom, you don't know this, and, and let, let's poke some holes at this. What was the Defiant built to do, Colin? Fight the Borg. Fight the goddamn Borg. And it's getting its ass kicked. Well, <laughs> to be fair, that's how it works with the Borg. Here's something yep. that I keep. I hate to say it. I would love to see Borg get assimilated. <laughs> just oh, think geez, about it. Louise. Just think about it. Him as a Borg. Maybe that's what's going to. I mean, he keeps trying to get himself on uh, one of these uh, future Star Trek shows. So maybe Dorn. that's going to be the. Yeah, Dorn. Dorn pushes hard on on it, which I get. Like it's his it's his milk money. Like that's when yeah. when I say Michael Dorn, if you know the the actor, you're gonna go, oh, Worf. You know, well, he's the, the the most the most Star Trek episodes of anybody ever, right? Anybody ever? Yeah, he's played the character the longest out of anyone. But I just can't imagine him being bored. Well, didn't we do see, see a there Klingon are, in here. There's a Klingon Borg in this. So you get your wish, sort of. When they're trying to do the grafting of Data's mm-hmm. arm, mm-hmm. the one Borg that's looking straight up as the camera comes down to meet Data, it's a Klingon. You can see the little uh, Klingon <laughs> facial hair and, of course, the ridges. I'm going to have to watch this movie again. I have to watch the movie after <laughs> you guys finish telling me all this stuff to look for. Then I can um, watch all it. right. Before we continue, when they're all listening to the battle of uh, Section One One Zero, congratulations, Jonathan Frakes! You are using a Dutch angle the proper way. Yeah, people use Dutch angles just like it looks cool, but it's supposed to give you a feeling of unease. Mm. And Troy is in one. Hawk is in one. Data's in one. All everybody on the bridge crew gets a close up when it becomes the. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Dutch angles all the way down, but in the right way, because you're supposed to be like, oh, this is bad. Yeah, well, it's it's smartly using the visual language of film to make everybody very uneasy even mm-hmm. if they've never seen an episode of Star Trek. And and this film really did reach out to, to people who hadn't and, and did pretty well with it. Yeah. You don't have to have any idea of who the Borg is to really know, oh, this is not good. This is not good. Mm-hmm. And that's because he's, like you said, cannily uses the, the, the Dutch the angles. The Dutch angle correctly. Ge- yeah. and, and the just general language of film 
to set mm-hmm. that up. It's also like a Dutch angle with like kind of a, a zoom in on each person. Really, it's a push zoom. Yeah, yeah. It really gives you that feeling of unease and dread. That you know, mm-hmm. is the reason for Dutch angles not to make the scene look cool. <laughs> Learning the fleet is losing the battle, the Enterprise crew disobeys orders and heads for Earth, where a single Borg cube ship holds its own against a group of Starfleet vessels. And the Millennium Falcon. Oh, yeah. The scene where he, where Picard decides he's gonna, he's gonna do it. And he goes up and says, I'm about to commit a direct violation of our orders. Any of you who wish to object should do so now. It will be noted in my log. And everybody, they do this thing, and, uh, and then Data turns around says captain i believe i speak for everyone here sir when i say to hell with our orders which is kind of a, a callback to it feels like it's supposed to be a callback to undiscovered country if i were human i believe my response would be go to hell if i were human it's very much that same feel of the, the Spock line. It's Data doing funny in the right way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not all of generations. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. I mean, we're gonna. I think we're going to track the weirdness of, of what happens with his uh, emotion chip for the rest of these Next Generation films. But... And so it's just not mentioned. But um, he says it in a way that if you were wondering what's gone on since Generations, it feels like it's nicely integrated into his personality. He's no longer talking with a tricorder puppet. But, <laughs> and he can also turn it off, apparently, which uh, well, yeah, yeah. That, kudos for him. <laughs> I believe I am feeling anxiety. It is an intriguing sensation. The most distracting. Yeah, I'm sure it's a fascinating experience, but perhaps you should deactivate your emotion chip for now. Good idea, sir. Done. And that's a great line that John Luke says. Data, there are times that I envy you. Enterprise arrives in time to assist the crew of USS Defiant and its captain, the Klingon Wharf. With the flagship now supporting them, Picard takes control of the fleet and directs the surviving ships to concentrate their firepower on a seemingly unimportant point on the Borg ship. The coordinates you have indicated do not appear to be a vital system. Trust me, Data. The cube is destroyed, but launches a smaller sphere ship towards the planet. Enterprise pursues the sphere into a temporal vortex. I love that. We're going to use science words. They're creating a temporal vortex. Then we're going to dumb it down for the people who don't know science. Time travel. <laughs> yeah. You always got to say time travel. It's so ridiculous. Did you? Did, did, did any of you happen to watch the trailers for this? <laughs> that has stuff from Best of Both Worlds and Undiscovered Country. It and does, yeah, it's bonkers. It do, well, it's got, it's got some Undiscovered Country music because they didn't probably finished the score yet and it's got best of both world shots because they don't want to give away the enterprise e the borg get a super duper upgrade in this yeah. movie they but i mean looking back at best of both worlds you're like yikes but they also just are like give away the whole time travel plot and everything yeah it's like time travel da, 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 da. Uh, and right. of course don La, don lanfontaine doing the voiceover is it really yeah, oh, it's been yeah. a while since i've seen it but oh my yeah. god yeah in yeah the world but, yeah. One He's man. so good. And the Borg. <laughs> so off we could use some help at tactical. You do remember how to fire phasers. As the sphere disappears, Enterprise discovers Earth has been altered. The atmosphere contains high concentrations of methane, carbon monoxide, and fluorine. Life signs? Population approximately 9 billion. All Borg. 
Realizing the Borg have used time travel to change the past, Enterprise follows the sphere through the vortex. I must follow them back. Repair whatever damage they've done. I do appreciate that this film just doesn't spend a lot of time figuring out the time travel. Either um, way, either time. Either like, way. I fig- what do they say when they're going back? They're just like, we've recreated what they did. Oh, good. <laughs> Literally what Jordan okay. says. Like, so we can just do that now. Well, just warp around the sun if that doesn't work. I mean, for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and it had to have killed Ron Moore because, I mean, Battlestar Galactica, there's none, aside from FTL drives, none of this happens in Battlestar Galactica. It's all pretty standard, like, science very little fiction. Well, I mean, ex- except aside the, from the Cylons, except yeah. for the utterly indistinguishable from humanoid, from human cybernetic organisms. Right, but there's uh, no, there's no like shields. There's no, you yeah. know, it, yeah. There's no techno babble when stuff happens. Yeah, but I mean, I don't want in this in this film. I don't want them to spend a lot of time on it. No, I, I, I 100% get, get agree. Moved. And this film, like you, to your point about it not being, you know, cinematic quaaludes, it really does move <laughs> along. Yeah, we're it, in the know. past in, what, 15 minutes, if even that, into the film? Right. It's not, it don't spend all of Act One getting us into the buy-in, right, of where they're going. Mm-hmm. And if anything, or the when battle they're going. At, at Sector 001 is like almost a uh, like a prologue. Well, apparently it was intended to be a bit of a longer and more involved battle, but uh, even though the budget is the biggest since motion picture, it's still not that big a budget. Yeah, so we get some new starships here, too. We get an Akira class uh, that, unfortunately, when the Borg cube explodes, it also goes with it. Rest oh. in peace, that entire crew. Uh, but that's where there's a shot where the it's coming at the camera, kind of like my hand is, and it's firing at the Borg cube before Picard tells them all the fire. If you look at its starboard nacelle, you can see the Millennium Falcon just go, <laughs> bye. Like, it's just, I'm like, oh, so Han and Chewie are here. Okay, good. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'll sure. send you a picture of it. it it's 100%. And the, uh, what's his face? Is they've, they've said that, yeah, we totally put the Millennium Falcon in here. And in one of the Star Wars movies, there's some Star Trek thing in there. I can't remember which one, but there's a little ode to Star Trek. They they play back and forth with each other all the time. Interesting. So next we're introduced to uh, James Cromwell and Alfred Woodard. We meet them before we even get back to establish. Oh, no, no, no. We, we establish what, yeah, what day it is. We establish yeah. when it is. So let me just read that. Enterprise okay. arrives hundreds of years in its past. Data, I need to know the exact date. April 4th, 2063. The day before first contact. Which feels a lot less like the future than it did when I saw this in 1996. 100%. I, I, when I was watching it's this It's like last 40 night, years like, from now. 42 like, no, years. I'll be, I'll be 82. <laughs> I'll be 150. Yeah, you sure will. Yeah. 116. Can't, can't wait for a first contact day. I wonder what Earth but will do. Unfortunately, we got to get through World War III. Yeah, that's first. true. Yeah, <laughs> that was some bleak. <laughs> From the radioactive isotopes in the atmosphere, I would estimate we have arrived approximately 10 years after the Third World War. Makes sense. Most of the major cities have been destroyed, very few governments left. 600 million dead. No resistance. What? <laughs> Wait a minute, hang on. Damn well, it, Ron we, Moore, stop being so negative. <laughs> no, we. I mean, the existence of World War III and the idea that 
humanity has to go through some pretty bad shit before it gets to the Federation is well-established Star Trek canon. Oh, sure, sure, sure. They just keep pushing the date out as they keep making these things later. later. Well, yeah, wasn't doesn't this movie coincide with uh, the eugenics war? Eugenics in, wars ninety six, right? Ninety six, ninety seven is when the is when the eugenics wars are established as happening in uh, in original series. Yeah, I must have missed that. Whole. Oh, there. Are, oh, if you don't think there are tie-in novels that explain how the eugenics wars happened and we all miss them, <laughs> there definitely are. They're one hundred percent. Of course, they are. Yeah, there are tie-in novels that explain how the eugenics wars happened, and and yet. Kind of, they were all like they were. They were secret. They were underground <laughs> in the in the hollow earth. Come on, guys. Yeah, I'm probably, I don't know something <laughs> like that. So yeah, weird. yeah, those um, high end so novels. Weird. So yeah, we just we discovered that it's 20, 2063, Then we're on. We're in Bozeman, Montana, because. Of course we are, because who's from Bozeman, Montana? Oh, that would be Brandon Braga. That's why there's the USS Bozeman in the last movie. It's the day before humanity's first encounter with alien life after Zephram Cochran's historic warp drive flights sometime after the Earth has been devastated by the nuclear holocaust of World War III. The crew realizes the Borg are trying to prevent <clears throat> first contact. We have a title. <laughs> Smash title. So yeah, uh, let's talk about James Cromwell, a semi-prolific Star Trek actor. Though he at this point, in- not a very prolific actor at all, really in, in in films. He's basically at this point the dude from Babe. Well, I mean, he was in Revenge of the Nerds, he was and in, but he was in he two was- or three Star Trek. Oh, sure. He was two different characters on Next Gen, and then he was a uh, prosthetic up alien on uh, Deep Space Nine. Hmm. Yeah, he's he's done a fair amount. Yeah, yeah, and, and he's great. And I did not mention it during the beginning, but Colin, do you know who originally was offered and almost took the role of Zephyr Cochran? No. That would be America's uh, dad, Tom Hanks. Interesting. Yeah, he had a he had a he had another commitment. He couldn't do it. He had wow. the commitment to direct that thing you do. That movie is still hurting people after all these years. Oh, I like that movie. Yeah, it's all right. It, yeah, it stopped I mean, us from getting Tom Hanks and Zephyr Cochran. No offense to James Cromwell. He's <sighs> wonderful. But it would have know, been outside the box for anything Tom Hanks had done to that point. I mean, he would have really had to kind of access his, like, Splash bosom buddies era, you know. I'm not mad about charm, any of that. <laughs> charming, charming screw up uh-huh. kind of no, no, self. No, no, yeah, no, you don't no, think no, so? no. I don't think so. I don't think he would have had to do that. I think he would have played it well. Remember, remember, this is a very intelligent guy. Well, yeah, he's no, also I mean, a very but, drunk guy, but, yeah, but, but he's not. You know, and this is also a pre-Saving Private Ryan, oh, all yeah. of that. Yeah. Tom mm-hmm. Hanks. We're talking. I mean, what we would have? It would have been like Philadelphia slash Forrest Gump era Tom Hanks more. But it, yeah, it would have been you know three time Oscar nominated Tom Hanks at this point. And imagine yeah, the clout no, this mean, movie would have gotten with that. It's certainly. I mean, he definitely would have been. You know. It's so interesting. Well, I'm, I've not, I had not come across that. And I'm just trying to picture it now. I just, I don't think he would have. I and it, and I'm definitely being colored by the saintliness that has accrued upon him sure. since then. But yeah, 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 I had trouble picturing him as much of a drunken 
you know, jerk as Cromwell winds up playing. On uh, uh, Family Ties, he did. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so, so fun little thing here. When Alfred Woodard notices the Borg sphere and says, What is that? That. What star makes up part of the constellation Leo? Oh, that would be Wolf 359. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're just like, oh, no, don't don't put out that star. That's where the uh, best of both worlds battle uh, happened, Mom. It was Wolf 359. Okay. We meet our two main guest stars here, right? Yeah, yeah. Cromwell and, that, and Alfred Woodard. And I now, love that it's just like we are dropped in the middle of the scene. It's not, it, there's no like, oh, we got to fly the Phoenix, you know, that silo missile that we built. And all, it, it's just like. If you don't know what's going on, that's okay. We'll catch you up as we go. We don't want a whole lot of exposition here introducing these characters. She had been now, nominated for an Oscar about that. Sure. Well, she has apparently been friends since coming to Los Angeles' young struggling actors with Jonathan Frakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have been longtime friends. So uh, yeah, He th- refers to her as his, her, uh, his, his godmother. Mother. Yeah, despite the fact that they're the same age, I don't think she's actually his godmother. Um, was yeah, she more established? Like it, she was more established when he came to Hollywood. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, the, the way I heard the story was that they were sort of struggling actors at the same time. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, she, she, her breakthrough was in a play called For Color Girls Who've Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough in 1977. Her film debut was in 78. So, you know... Uh, you know, she did she did some television and stuff in the eighties, but I don't. You know, she didn't become Alfre Woodard. Uh, well, she'd done Scrooge and uh, uh, well, Heart she, and Souls she, by this point. She'd gotten a nomination for an Emmy for Saint Elsewhere in eighty six. That's the same. That's a year before Next Generation goes on. So if we're talking about the early eighties, when they probably both were, you know, anyway. I just I, I was unaware of that I thought that was a really fun tidbit and uh, I mean she's fantastic in this movie right I mean she's so they're good. both I mean, I mean both her and Cromwell I mean they're both great yeah there's no question why they're they're there you couldn't ask for like higher quality of guest star and she can really you know she goes toe to toe with Patrick Stewart in so many scenes in so many ways and their relationship is so feels so lived in and interesting and mm-hmm. like. Warm, and real and but organic, not romantic like, and or yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and not romantic. I love, I love uh, that it does not end up romantic. Apparently, earlier drafts it was more of a romantic thing. Of course, earlier drafts apparently r- rather reversed it in that Riker was on yeah. the mm-hmm. Enterprise the whole Read time, that. and Patrick Stewart was on the ground, and he apparently, <laughs> apparently, Stewart said after the first reading, the first draft said, "Why am I not dealing with the Borg?" I'm the I'm the character with history in there. Everybody kind of went, oh yeah. <laughs> we should probably point out the history behind why Best of Both Worlds and Lacutus came to be. Because Patrick Stewart was in contract negotiations that were failing, and the end of Best of Both Worlds was in fact supposed to uh, part one was supposed to be the destruction of that Borg cube. And the death of Lacutus and John Luke, and it was going to be Captain Riker from then on. And at the eleventh hour, they fixed it, and that's why the beginning of Best of Both Worlds Part Two. They're like, "Uh, yeah, we totally knew you were going to do that. We're the Borg." <laughs> it just seems so like 
and then that happened. You know, like uh, I did without that, we wouldn't get this movie. We wouldn't get most of the amazing storyline in Picard. I mean, thanks Patrick Stewart for holding your guns on your contract negotiations. Yeah. I do enjoy when they're all going to beam down to the planet after they destroy the, the Borg sphere to see what, what kind of damage they've done. And as they're walking out, do you catch what Picard says to the computer? Computer, mid-21st century civilian clothing. What? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, I wanted Major Bear to come out and go, are you serious? <laughs> like, mid-20... We, we know the date. We don't need to say mid. We could just say 2060-era clothing. But, that also assumes that people are wearing the same things in all parts of the world. and that, Yeah, all... that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. It should have been mid-century, mid-21st century uh, Northern American clothing, yeah. which apparently yeah. is lot, lots and lots of pockets. All, all the pockets. <laughs> Rob Layfield really has taken over as the... Uh... <laughs> I, you know, I do think that the, the bad... Now, granted, they're not intended to be 24th century civilian costumes, but the mm-hmm. uh, the streak of questionable civilian costuming in these films has sort of been broken. Everything, and maybe that's just that it's it's all coming from a 1996 perspective, which doesn't sure. seem as weird to me as you know McCoy's disco drip. But you know, <laughs> do not go after McCoy's disco drip. It's wonderful. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I, but I agree. Like what Jonathan Frakes is wearing, I'm like, I wear that. Yeah. Then, you know, Picard's yeah. rocking a, a nice duster. Yeah. Uh, nothing except maybe Jordy's weird, uh, poofy vest. That that's the only thing that felt nineties. Everything else kind of lined up, but they kind of put the African American in, in a street urban type outfit. And I was like, Ugh. they also put him in a pair of spiffy contacts. Fulfilling, fulfilling a, li- a long campaign by LeVar Burton. Can I take this headband off? And it, again, much like the, the um, t- uh, time travel, I love that they don't spend a lot of time on it. They're just like, oh, at some point, Jordy got these, and that's cool. Which is weird because it, he must have gotten it while they were building the Enterprise E. Like, timeline-wise, because the Enterprise D is destroyed, and it seems like it's been, it's been a year. They say it. They say the Enterprise has been out, and so it's probably been a year and a half. Well, you can work backwards from... How uh, long it's been since Data had sex? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, you can work backwards from that. That was eight years, wasn't it? Eight years, seven months, 16 days, four minutes, 22. Far too long. It's only been six years since Picard. No, it's only been six years since Picard was Now, that, that works because it's season season three, Ender, is uh, Best of Both Worlds Part 1. So, totally, that lines up. Yeah, but no, but then it doesn't add up because then you, you basically have, like, a year between all good things and this, during which you also fit in Generations, and there's a full year shakedown cruise for the E. None well, maybe it's much like at the Enterprise A, they already had a ship being built. They're like, well, let's make it the E. Yeah. You know, it might have been that. Like, they already had a sovereign class being built, and it was going to be the, I don't know, the Nebuchadnezzar or something. And they're <laughs> like, well, let's now make it the, the Enterprise. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, after destroying the Borg Sphere, an away team transports down to Cochrane ship Phoenix in Bozeman, Montana. Picard has Cochrane's assistant, Lily Sloan, sent back to Enterprise for medical attention. The captain returns to the ship and leaves <laughs> Commander William T. Riker on Earth to make sure Phoenix's flight proceeds as planned. 
While in the future, Cochrane is seen as a hero, the real man built the Phoenix for financial gain and is reluctant to be the heroic person the crew describes. Yeah. It's, a, it's such a good setup that he's... I, and Cromwell you know. plays it so well. Yeah. Um, so Lily and Sickbay. First, Sickbay and Engineering are on the same deck. That you know, I caught that too. It really weird. doesn't seem like the place you want it. I mean, I I guess if you assume that the most injuries are going to happen in engineering, <laughs> that's what I was you thinking too. You want them too. very close to sick bay, <laughs> but at the same time, the most explosions are going to happen in engineering. So, do you want them that close to sick bay? Depends on where. I mean, I'm assuming engineering deck sixteen is at the back of, and maybe they're mm-hmm. at the front. I don't. I don't know. The, the decks on the Enterprise, again, change. He says there are 24 decks on this, but at one point somebody says they've taken deck 26. And then <laughs> in in Insurrection or in Nemesis, one of the two, they mentioned deck 29. I'm like, what what happened? Did they, they just start, add? There are 24 decks. We started counting at five <laughs> for reasons. It, like like how elevators don't have a uh, number thirteen yeah, on them. Like yeah, there's yeah. no thirteen, right? Yeah. In, in the 24th century, one through four are considered bad luck. There we go. When the Borg are breaking into sick bay, yes. Uh, this this is our oh, first. There you go, mom. Yes. First of two Voyager castmates showing up in uh, the Next Generation movie. I, the wait, this is a Voyager. Voyager. This is a wait. This is a Voyager Easter egg. I assumed it was a China Beach Easter egg. Before I'd never use one of these. Computer, activate the EMH program. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. No, it's actually a Gremlins 2 Easter egg. Oh, uh, yeah, well, that makes more sense. <laughs> so, wait, Mom, you weren't, you weren't no, getting all was, head up about the, the EMH. What were you getting all head up about? How did Beverly know that it was the boar coming through the door? It has the never... The thing in her hand? No, those are, they're out by that scanned. time. She scans it when they start the, hitting the, the wall. Through the metal door? Absolutely. It's a tricorder. It can go through. It can read through stuff oh, like that. Hell. It's that also a pretty. Sorry. It's also. They blew up a Borg cube. They followed the Borg through time. They blew up a Borg sphere. Yep. Now somebody's punching through the door. It's a pretty good bet. It ain't the Ferengi. No, I mean, I couldn't figure out how she knew that it was Borg because it's never been. By the, by the time she makes the statement that the Borg are there. All the communications are down. But she still has her tricorder. No, I think Casey's right. It would have been scanned, you know, the scan from uh, her from the tricorder. Yeah, but but I think it's also just an, a fair assumption that that's who it yeah. is, right? Yeah, but I, I love that, uh, you know, Robert Picardo, uh, he did, he's done it a couple times on Voyager, but he continues the Bones McCoy, I'm a doctor, not a insert whatever. 20 Borg are about to break through that door. We need time to get out of here. Create a diversion. This isn't part of my program. I'm a doctor, not a doorstop. Well, do a dance. Tell a story. I don't care. Just give us a few seconds. I believe that's the Voyager um, sickbay redress. Sure, it is. It 100% is because what Lily's in is what he's putting people in all the time. The the thing, yeah. Which would make total sense. It's the easiest way to get Picardo into the movie. Literally just put him in a different uniform because Voyager never gets these fancy uniforms. They're stuck in the... Right. Jumpsuits their entire show. According to Starfleet Medical Research, Borg implants can cause severe skin irritations. Perhaps you'd like an analgesic cream? 
A group of Borg invade Enterprise's lower decks and begin to assimilate its crew and modify the ship. Picard and the team attempt to reach engineering to disable the Borg with a corrosive gas, but are forced back. But the Borg are not entirely organic. True, but like all cybernetic life forms, they cannot survive without their organic components. Oh, I forgot that they set up the gas ahead of time. Mm -hmm. They sure do, yep. Yeah, I caught that today. The android data is captured in the melee. (sighs) Yeah, Um, That's a great sequence. I mean, the Borg fight is really well done. It's really, it's scary. It's well staged. This movie gets twice to like let Michael Dorn say dramatically, Captain, they've adapted. Can we talk about it's it's the second time, but we're here now, so I might as well mention it now. The second time there's a Borger taking crew members scene, and there's that amazing shot of possibly the best I'm dead and I know it face on that uh, security crewman who can't get his his uh, phaser rifle to load or whatever, and the Borger company just looks up at them and goes, oh. <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm going to get assimilated so bad right now. <laughs> it's so good. I did have the thought as they, they progressed into having to, you know, really clock them with the, the butt end of the phaser rifles and things like that, that it really wouldn't be a bad idea if the Borg board your ship to just replicate a bunch of broadswords. Yeah, there you go. Or, well, what is Worf well, Curry Worf's later? Worf's got his, uh, I forget what. Mechleth, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so but but right, everybody should be getting sword training against the Borg, right? Mm-hmm. That should be Borg, tra- Borg uh, Combat 101. Lop off their heads. I mean, yeah. it would just be full zombies at that point. Yeah, right. It's a great sequence, though. It's it's really well shot. This is the, the DNA of the of the horror movie is all into it, and 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 again, we're getting. I think the ratcheting up of Picard losing his his rational detachment and ability to to not make this personal. It's done mm-hmm. so subtly that it really you, even here you you you're watching and you don't see it. But if you go back and watch it, knowing where the film is going, you can see it. And I just think a, a, a lesser script, a lesser dire- directorial hand, and a lesser actor than Patrick Stewart would telegraph it from the beginning, right? We would be 100. We would be 15 minutes into the film, and we'd be going, "This is going to be a movie about how he's undone by his obsession." And we've all seen that movie where, like that that theme, that character arc is just really hammered home and telegraphed. And I think it sneaks up on you in this film in a way that make me feel respected as an audience member. Yeah, 100%. I think the tipping point is Data getting captured. That's really where he becomes unhinged. Not like full breaking his little ships. No! No! He definitely, uh, that's, that's the starting to become, as Lily puts it, Captain Ahab. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's long here, but did you know that that for the board, they only use like 12 actors? Mm -hmm. Sure. That makes sense. I think we see most of them in that one shot. We just had that, that I had to keep redoing it for five hours to do the makeup for those guys. God, those poor actors. I did, I did hear a, a read a, um, Alice Creed gave a, a, little uh anecdote about you know off camera in between takes at at the commissary mm-hmm. that people did were unnerved by the borg not just her but all the borg mm-hmm. that they avoided them and and she's like and, and she's like and i just kind of used that you know that it, you know i mean 
The Borg well, are she, creepy. Also, Danny hates yeah. all Borg episodes. She won't. She's seen all of Next Generation. She hates those episodes, and she's never seen this movie because she knows the Borg are so heavy in it. She yeah just doesn't like the Borg. <clears throat> They're creepy. I get it. Well, I guess um, Alice Creek. It was somewhere I read that she was very, very uncomfortable in her costume. Yeah, she's pretty oh, much yeah. slipped into that wore. thing. Yeah, it it's, was really, really hard for her to wear. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't look like it breathes. And I imagine yeah. much like uh, Christian Bale used in uh, Batman Begins, she probably used that uncomfortableness to bring out the wickedness in in the Borg Queen. Yeah, it could be. You know, because she's very malicious and wonderfully so. It's also very seductive. Yes. Yeah, well, we're going to get to the Borg. I think we need to talk a lot about the Borg Queen when she comes in. Though she does, we maybe we should because uh, she seems to not really be much in this, which is interesting because in this little um, synopsis we're reading, what? you know, she's not well story wise. First of all, she's basically in three scenes. Sure, but she's so memorable in those three scenes. <clears throat> she's so memorable. She doesn't drive the plot right. In the way other marquee villains do. Yeah, but that's you, okay. You're She's never so... going, well, what's the Borg Queen doing now? She's there as sort of a symbolic figure of the seductive possibilities of the Borg for Data. Right. And a mouthpiece for their their point of view. Mm-hmm. But she's not, you know, it's not like you see the Borg Queen giving orders. And, you know, it's she functions really differently that way. Yeah. At one point, she just puts her hand up and they all... Scatter away. I'm like, oh, yeah. My, my. When they're trying to get the codes out of data, mm-hmm. they drill two holes in the side of his <clears throat> head. Yeah. And then they're just gone. The not next the, scene. They're not there. Yeah, they're not there. <laughs> why Why do that? I did notice that. <laughs> All you got to do is put two little black dots on Brent Spiner's head, and then there you go. Uh, it's just, it's <clears throat> more body horror, right? So yeah, but it. it's, it's body horror that ruins continuity. Like, yeah. That's, that's oh, no, but yeah, the drilling. But but we also get the sort of reverse of body horror, right? I mean, the the patch of skin on his arm, yeah, which again is a is a mix of practical and digital effects. So, at what point do you think Brett was reading the script and saw this whole thing of like Data's getting skin? He's like, oh my god, I don't have to get gold painted anymore. And then all of a sudden, he's like, oh, I have to do twice as much makeup. Because I have to be dated and then human dated here. Oh, and then I have to have all that skin go away. So I have to have all these uh, Christmas lights all over my face and arm. He must have been so pissed at the end of this script. (laughs) Like being like, I got hours in the makeup chair ahead of me. How the hell did you? Calm down. Shut up. Who are you? My name is Jean-Luc Picard. No, who are you with? What faction? I'm not a member of the Eastern Coalition. A frightened Sloan corners Picard with a weapon, but he gains her trust. <laughs> Does a lot. That's a great scene. It's a great sequence where he's leading her through and maximum setting. If you'd fired this, you would have vaporized me. It's my first ray gun. <laughs> it's my first ray gun. <laughs> but I like. I love that scene. I really do. I think. You know, a lot of times people, it probably because of the, the timing of television, you know, people have to buy into the, hi, we're from the Starship Enterprise, that exists, roll with it, go. Mm-hmm. Um, here, you know, she really takes her a long time to be convinced. Also, showing the intelligence of Picard, like, I'm not a member of the Eastern Coalition. He knows, okay, that's who you probably think I am. Um, right. But then when he's describing 
He says, "You're on a ship, uh, a spaceship." He's like, "Right, you didn't." In 2063, you weren't calling them starships yet. That's they're like <clears throat> canonically, right. we didn't call them starships. So I and you right. see it on Stewart's face. You see it on Picard being like, uh, uh, "How can I best explain this?" Yeah. But also, like, what were you calling it at this point? Right, spaceships, not starships. It was. It's just so great. What do we make of there being just no discussion of the Prime Directive here? Uh, there of not is. interfering. There he is when Deanna's drunk. I think we have to tell him the truth. If we tell the truth, the timeline... Timeline! This is no time to argue about time. We don't have the time. What was I saying? You're drunk. I am not. Yes, you are. Well, no, oh, before yeah. that... And, and Crusher inoculates Crusher everybody. Has to, and she's like... Yeah. like We're all going to have to be inoculated. And I have to get her to sick bay. Doctor. Please, no lectures about the Prime Directive. I will keep her unconscious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, she's like, Picard, don't. Don't even start. I'm, I could take you out of commission if I wanted to. And then when, when the scene, well, that's, it's a little further down. Because I think it's one of the greatest scenes in the whole movie. The drunk Deanna? The drunk Deanna. Drunk Deanna. Oh, oh, my God, it's so funny. Yeah, we'll get to there the- in a second. The two escape the Borg-infested area of the ship by creating a diversion in the holodeck. And not just any diversion. Dixon Hill. A, a Dixon Hill diversion. With uh, a... De, what's his no, name? Nick the Nose? Oh, yeah. Did you recognize him? The actor? Yeah. No. He's the da- he's Donna's dad from that 70s show. I don't know how much you watched that 70s show, but... Oh, he was, he was oh yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, I more just clocked the fact that even the Dixon Hill section had part man, part machine. Yeah, with with Nick the Nose, yeah. Um, I like the way he struck the match. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Mater D. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but we're closing. And you do understand we have a strict dress code. Is Ethan Phillips, who plays Neelix on Star Trek Voyager. It and is. thus completes Excellent. our three... Uh, Star Trek shows that were on television at the time. Worf, yeah. even though he was on Next Gen, but he was Deep Space Nine character at this point. Also, the um, the bodyguard that Stuart pats down. He's like, hey, I'm going to take that personal in a second. No offense. Stunt coordinator for the movie. Oh, yeah. Apparently, a lot. I mean, a lot of the guests are the writers and the thing, you know, that yeah, they, I, they I, filled I, people in as extras in that scene. I remember seeing it in... Like you know, ninety seven when it came out on video, maybe ninety eight, and that guy, you know, that guy said, "Hey, I'm going to take that personal in a second. I was like, "What the hell is this guy?" <laughs> He's the star coordinator for the film. So apparently, the idea to to use Dixon Hill, which is uh, you know a, a callback to several episodes, uh, did grow out of that that the idea of the Borg going to. Sometime in the past, and and the idea of the sure. Borg against period costumes, right? Uh, yeah. So they decided to go to have a little bit of that here. <laughs> One does wonder why you can disable the safeties mm-hmm. on the holodeck, like why that's a feature. But especially, how many times did that happen on the D? 
Like they'd be like in a holodeck program and it malfunctions. What's the first thing to go? The safety protocols. Hey, when you build the E, be like, so safety protocols can never be turned off. Like they <laughs> are just shut everything down. Hardwired into it. Too many stuff happened on the last enterprise. Yeah. I mean, that's because the holodeck is there as a story generating device. Whoa, 100%. And this is the last time we'll see a holodeck. Uh, we won't get in the next suit. This is the, the end of the holodeck. <laughs> Picard, Worf, and the ship's navigator, Lieutenant Dead Guy, Lieutenant Hawk, travel outside the ship in spacesuits. Wait. To... This is the most. I gotta go back. We gotta go back. So. Okay, mom's got something. No, it, oh, do you have something, mom? Yeah. When. <laughs> this just popped in my head today. When she asked, when um, Alfie asked, Lily. how much did this thing cost? Oh. And he make, says that the economics of the future are somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. No money? You mean you don't get paid? The first thing that popped, popped into my head this afternoon, Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> well, that and like I, I had the I had a similar joke. Like I wanted Quark to pop in the screen be like, am I a joke to you? Money <laughs> well, doesn't exist. Time, Gold yes. press latinum. <laughs> Oh, if yeah. you're, if you're, a little hand yeah, wavy on, uh, on uh, Deep Space just, Nine, how that works. Yes, but Bitcoin, yes. If you haven't read a book called Treconomics, it's a very interesting book about the economics of Star Trek and the idea and what it says about a post-scarcity society with no money and the plausibility of that and the, the mm. limitations of that. And it's a very interesting book written by a, a real Star Trek fan who also happens to be an economist. I would recommend that. I, I can't remember the um, author's name off the top of my head. But Manu Sadia. Oh, sure. I yeah. may be mispronouncing his last yeah. name. He's French. Um, it's really it's really good. Treconomics, uh, the economics of Star Trek. So two things before we go out into zero G, um, because it is a historic moment for Next Generation cast. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, when... Picard comes back to the bridge. Captain. Jean-Luc. Reports of my assimilation are greatly exaggerated. And then when they figure out that they can get to the reflector dish by doing uh, EVAX, or uh, uh, what are they called? EV suits? EV suits. Yeah. Do you remember your zero-G combat training? I remember it made me sick to my stomach. What are you suggesting? <laughs> I remember watching this in 98 and being like, oh, Worf's funny. And then realizing they discovered Michael Dorn can be funny in Deep Space Nine. Like, Worf is on Next Generation is the straight man funny. Like, Michael Dorn has really, really good comedic timing. And they make Worf funny in Deep Space Nine. He gets some actual, like, he is making the joke moments. Um so I, I, I very much enjoyed that, that they finally realized, hey, Michael Dorn can be funny. Yeah. So the EV suits, this is the first and only time we will see anyone from the Next Generation cast wear an EV suit. Well, do you know when they first put them on, when Stuart first put the helmet on, he got very sick and they had to stop Ooh. filming? Yeah. No, I did not. Apparently, yeah. they were they were very difficult to breathe in. And they had little fans in them and the lights, but he got very sick and they had to discontinue filming for, for a while because he was sick. Oh. 
It's a great, it's a yeah. great sequence when they're out on the, you know, it's just such a good, and it, it really is from just from a filmmaking perspective, I felt like it was such a great example of how you can build genuine excitement and tension without having to rush any. I mean, they all move very slowly because they're in yep. the suits, they're out, they're in zero G, you know, and yet that actually heightens the tension. Doesn't one hundred? It doesn't make it boring, you know. And no. I, I just feel like I don't. I don't know today if anybody would really be willing to shoot this sequence and not speed it up, you know, either right. with lots well, of cuts it, or by just having everybody move at an abnormally fast pace. One thing that was also I thought was so great about it is that the, to me, it's the first time you really got the got the feeling of just how big. The Enterprise is the scale, yeah, with, with the three hue so much better than any of the other yeah. previous movies we've watched sure. when they're from Jesus and Doc and everything. This is uh, the when I first saw it, I said, Oh my god, she's big! Yeah, she's a big chick. Well, the next Enterprise we see, uh, is apparently somehow bigger than the E, which yeah. makes zero damn sense, but we'll, yeah. we'll. Gripe we'll on that when we move to an alternate universe. Um, <laughs> I love that they give Michael Dorn the schlocky 80s uh, one-liner before killing everyone. Uh, assimilate this. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so good. It's so yeah. good. You know Michael Dorn read that in the script and went, yay. <laughs> <laughs> no, he went, yay. The guy with him tying off the... Uh, yeah. That was cool. Cutting his suit with the arm, tying off the suit with the arm is really good. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a it's a killer sequence. It really is. Did, it's so good. How did the guy? I can't yeah, just fell. How did the guy, the third, not born or store, but the Lieutenant Hawk. Hawk? How did Hawk get back? Because I thought the guy threw him out and he just floated off into space, and then all of a sudden he's back. That was another Borg that went flying off. Into yeah, space. I know, but so did Hawk when they when they. Got him. They oh, it does you know, kind of look like he gets thrown over, but he's gets basically gets carried over. Oh, yeah, yeah. they carry him over to assimilate. Yeah, and that was some cool shooting by Jean Luc at just the bottom to send the guy out. Mm-hmm. Since they, well, that's one. That's one of the changes they sort of made with the Borg. And this is the idea that they assimilate on the fly. You do have a. There's a scene where yeah. the, it comes out of somebody's. Uh, fingers into the and it's done with nanites and they really said that as part of the redesign in addition to just having a lot more money to spend than they ever did on any of the Borg on television they wanted to feel that rather than assimilation being things put onto a body it it things growing yep. out coming from the yep. inside out which would totally make sense they must have assimilated some race that used nanotechnology but right. Redesign, unlike the redesign, I don't know if anyone else saw it, but there was a new Discovery uh, trailer, and they showed the redesign of the Ferengi, and the internet lost their damn mind. Wait, there's a redesign? They redesigned the Ferengi? Yeah, it's not very good, but whatever. I'm, I'm not going to... The Ferengi know. didn't need it's, redesigning. It's literally one shot of it, and I'm like, is this a hybrid Ferengi? We don't know. Let's wait until the series comes out mm. to find out, but... The board getting redesigned at any point, I don't have any problem with as long as it's still technology on faces and arms. But anything beyond that, it's fine because maybe they assimilated some species where they found a new way to do something. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, evolution, rapid evolution yeah. is part of the deal there, right? 100%. Um, yeah. Well, I want to know why they didn't, the three guys didn't all say, okay, 
we're going to, so when I say go, we're going to all do the lock thing at the same time, then they wouldn't problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were trying if to they, do it as fast as they could, right? Yeah, but if... Right, but they should have, they, they had communications. They should have been like, one, two, three, because it's obvious when... Hawk starts doing it, that one Borg drone is like, hey, stop messing with that stuff, and he goes and assimilates him. So, they really should have done it all at the same time to so that there was no chance for the Borg to come after them. But then we wouldn't have gotten this amazing scene. As the Borg continue to assimilate more decks, Worf suggests destroying the ship. Have your orders. I must object to this course of action. The objection is noted. But Picard angrily calls him a coward, infuriating Worf because of his Klingon heritage. I believe you are allowing your personal experience with the Borg to influence your judgment. You want to destroy the ship and run away, you coward. Yeah, Worf got his uh, big boy pants on Deep Space Nine, didn't he? This kind of stuff happened all the time on Next Gen, and he'd be like, oh, okay. But here he, he threatens to kill Picard. If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. That actually was in the trailer, believe it or not. Talk about right. giving, giving away things. Um. Um, can, can we back up and you can maybe insert this when we were talking about it? Did either one of you catch the Darth Vader breathing? No. 3414. They're walking through and the camera goes by this and you hear just a real quick. Really? Yeah. Huh. I will. Well, uh, dear audience, you just heard it and I will have. Heard it for the, I guess, the first time when I edit this episode. That's crazy. You son of a bitch. This really isn't the time. Let's talk about this scene in the observation lounge. I mean, what's not the love? It's just such a good scene. It's such a good scene. <laughs> it's so good. It- There's an argument to be made here that maybe, you know, this should have, that, I mean, you, I think you guys were talking before we started recording that, you know, this could have been Guinan. This should have been Guinan. This yeah. could have been Beverly. I think it has to be someone who doesn't know him. Yeah, that's true. It can't be someone who's accustomed to take to following his orders, you know, and who it has to be somebody who isn't blinded by years. An of, argument could be made that Guiden is not. Well, but but he, but but also just isn't doesn't have years of trusting him that can sometimes get in the way of seeing when someone is being. That's foolish. true. Yeah, Guiden definitely does. Yeah, because you're so used to trusting them. I mean, it, it's so weird that uh, maybe it's his year is year and a half or so away from him. But, like, Worf doesn't outright say it, but Worf knows John Luke mm-hmm. is making the wrong choice here. And Worf definitely now not being security, he's tactical? No, he's on Was a command track he now. He's a, com- he's a commander, isn't he? he has his he's own still a lieutenant commander. But no, he doesn't have the ship. He's actually like third in. He would but be he's third in, com- in line, technically. If but they didn't, yeah. But he's he's ops or something like that. He's because he and Odo butt heads in the beginning because right. he's not security anymore. Obviously, he's wearing red. But I can't remember what position he takes over yeah. DS Nine. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You all know our new strategic operations officer. Maybe that's part of it too. That he has a different perspective on. Like, it's almost like he's, well, the Dominion War hasn't started yet, so he's not there for that. So maybe that's why he, he kind of can see this in a different way. Um, and, and I feel like maybe Beverly knows John Luke is making the wrong choice, but her, Gates McFadden's... Oh, she definitely knows. Gates McFadden plays it as if she totally knows this is a, the wrong move, but she's going to follow the orders anyway. So what do we do now? We carry out his orders. 
Dyson, Kaplan, start working on a way Wait, to modify the weapon system. stupid. If we can get off this ship and then blow it up, let's do it. Once the captain's made up his mind, the discussion is over. Which is weird because there's always the play that the chief medical officer can take the captain out if they don't feel they're physically or mentally fit to be doing the job. And, like, there's no discussion of anyone being like, hey, Crusher, you could, like, uh, you know, take him out and then tell us all to leave the ship. I mean, there's also the, the fact that all of this is happening 300 years in their past. Yeah. So what do they, you know, they could blow up the Enterprise or they could go down fighting and blow up the Enterprise. You know what I mean? Like, there's, it's not like they're they're hurrying back home. They're they're. I feel like they all kind of feel like, for all intents purposes, they're they're stuck in the past. Yeah. The end of this scene, when John Luke has his little meltdown. This is not about revenge. Liar! This is about saving the future of humanity. John Luke, blow up the damn ship! No! No! Breaks all his little ships, as Lily says. <laughs> Um, yeah. If you notice that that shot of him actually throwing the phaser rifle into the glass, the Enterprise D model stays together. One of the cells falls off and it kind of slides forward. Mm-hmm. But then the next shot you see it, the starboard section is on the ground, and they had to add the effect yeah. in because they couldn't reshoot it. They had to add in uh, like a clunk sound of it hitting <laughs> the ground because they they would have to replace the glass, clean it all up, and Frakes. Uh, got the title on this movie as Two Takes Frakes uh, because <laughs> he would do one, do one for coverage, and move on to the next shot. Well, apparently this this was a full day of filming, though, with this Oh, I'm uh, sure it was. Scene. Oh, yeah. And both Woodard and um, Patrick Stewart apparently have, have mentioned that this was just a delightful day because they just... And it was it was you know that the three of them treated it like a day of of theater, right? Mm-hmm. They just were spending all this time in this this two hander scene with all this juice. Invade our space, and we fall back. They simulate entire worlds, and we fall back. Not again. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. I mean, it's there 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 are the big yelling explosions at each other, but there's just really a gorgeous quiet moments when they start discussing Moby Dick. And he piled on the whale's white hump. The sum of all the rage and hate felt by his whole race. If his chest had been a cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. What? Moby Dick. Actually, I never read it. Uh, it's a, it's a great scene. I mean, I, I not going to surprise anybody. I think we're all going to be considering it when it comes time to talk about best scene at the end here. Oh, sure, sure, definitely. We're we're pretty much near the end, but the uh, John Luke says everybody needs to uh, evacuate the ship, but he's going to stay behind to get data. Right? Yeah. See, I feel like we're we're near the end here, and we just have not talked enough about the Borg Queen. We haven't talked about the Borg Queen or much about Cochrane. I gotta take a leak. Leak? I'm not detecting any leak. Don't you people from the 24th century ever pee? Oh, leak. I get it. (laughs) That's really funny. Now, what's really interesting is this is the first film, I think, that has, like, I was saying before, it's the one that doesn't, it feels very much like a film, right? Not a mm-hmm. not a TV episode. And yet it has an, a TV episode's A and B plot. Yeah, 100%. Branch off and then don't really reconnect till the end. Um, and we do, we get some more callbacks to the show in the B plot with Cochran, uh, where uh, Red Barkley shows up. 
<laughs> and of course, it's annoying as hell. Dr. Cochran, I know this sounds silly, but can I shake your hand? And also, we get the, uh, well, I think the only time in any movie and TV show. And you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. He says the name. They also of put the that franchise. in the trailer, which was a weird choice. Um, Very weird. I loved some of this stuff, you know, Jordy uh, telling him about the statue and... In the future, this whole area becomes an historical monument. You're standing almost on the exact spot where your statue's gonna be. Statue? Oh, yeah. It's marble, about 20 meters tall, and you're looking up at the sky and your hands sort of reaching toward the future. James Cromwell's reaction to that, like, oh, Jesus, no. Their absolute inability to resist hero-worshipping this guy is just... Who is very clearly, to the audience, a ginormous asshole. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, well, it just or just not At the this guy moment. That, just not the guy they think he is, right? Just very much mm-hmm. more flawed and human, and we don't want to also skip over uh, mom was mentioning it earlier, the uh, <laughs> Counselor Troy's attempt to ingratiate herself. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. You blend it already. What a fun day that must have been for Marina Sirtis. To just, I mean, she, she plays, playing drunk is really hard. Yeah. To not make it ginormous and silly. And I think she does a good job of making it big, which if you do the math, she takes six shots in 20 minutes. He wouldn't even talk to me unless I had a drink with him. And then it took three shots of something called tequila just to find out he was the one we're looking for. And I've spent the last 20 minutes trying to keep his hands off me. So don't go criticizing my counseling technique. I would be blitzed at that point. Well, six shots in 20 minutes? Oh, my God. I like the line. Now this, Deanna. Deanna. This is the good stuff. Dr. Cochran. To the Phoenix. He does the same with his arm. <laughs> Such a great character add-on. That- He's so good in this. Shit. Okay, that wasn't so good. From this point on, sort of, I just love. Jonathan Frakes seems to most of Riker's scenes on Earth are just Riker just kind of beaming at everybody, and just be like, "You bunch of goofballs," <laughs> <laughs> or being like, "Ah." God, I can't believe this is yeah. what I've been relegated to. <laughs> I also like... You told him about the statue? Yeah. And Joy looks at him like... But, yeah, so... It's good Star Trek comedy, right? Like, we bad... Oh, it is. When, when yeah. Star Trek comedy Much better goes than wrong, generations. it can be really hard to watch. But this is all good. It all comes out of character, and it's all warm and, and lighthearted. It, I, I love all that stuff. Uh, the one last thing uh, with Deanna is something that I... Sometimes just randomly quote for no reason. If we tell the truth, the timeline... Timeline! This is no time to argue about time. We don't have the time. Yeah. What was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> I love the look on, on Frace's face when she when she her head goes down. And she, yeah. she just looks like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. It's, oh, it's borderline, oh my God, my ex-girlfriend is embarrassing yeah, right. me right now. <laughs> Yeah, I, I also love that. Who is this jerk? 
Who called him? He could turn off my music. Will Riker, Zephram Cochran. Good friend of yours? Yes. Husband? No. Good. <laughs> yeah, the, the the smile that Riker puts on right after that is just massive. He's enjoying her being drunk quite a bit. Because maybe one of the first times Deanna's been drunk. Well, yeah, because all these people on the Enterprise the is synthol, right? Exactly. Yeah, they sure you can take six shots in twenty minutes. It's not going to do well, anything. No, it to will. You. The deal with synthol is it you it will get you as drunk as alcohol, but you can voluntarily shake it off. You can actually sober wow. yourself up, like data turning off his chip. That that's my understanding of the deal with synthol, right? Sign me the yeah, hell right? up. <laughs> and no hangover. Yeah, right. Over at the Never Heard of It podcast, we've spent the last four years criticizing people's films and talking about how they could have made them better. Well, you know what? Now it's time to put your money where our mouth is. That's right. The Never Heard of It podcast and Night Shift Radio are making a movie. We are making a brand new sci-fi thriller called Somnium. Somnium is the tale of a brand new app, something kind of like TikTok, where people are able to watch others' dreams, everyone's dreams, anonymously across the world. However, our main character, Adam, starts to see dreams that look all too familiar, including dreams of somebody murdering him. So the question is, who is dreaming of murdering Adam? That's the question we look to answer in our brand new film, Somnium. But we need your help. We need your help in funding so we can pay the amazing crew and the amazing cast of this brand new film. Head to nightshiftradio.com slash Somnium. Donate what you can. And if you can't, share with 100,000 of your closest friends. Someone out there is going to be a rich weirdo that's going to want to fund this film. So again, nightshiftradio.com slash Somnium. Thank you so much, guys. We look forward to making this movie just for you. So John Luke stays behind. Yes. He is now completely in just an athletic t-shirt. And my note is John Luke Picard, more like John Luke lift hard. Oh boy. Come on, he's jacked. I didn't notice him being jacked until he was hanging on the thing up there. On what essentially is the Borg Queen's tentacles? No, yeah. no, those Ooh. those are the three that are flopping around. This is the one that goes all the way across and it keeps coming out. Oh, man. But just like, I remember, again, in 98, watching this for the first time and being like, good for you, Patrick Stewart. Good for you. The, obviously, the Enterprise-E has a very nice gem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you mentioned at the beginning, Colin. Well, no, you know what? I'll wait until we get there because we got the, the data fake out, so... What's, oh, what's but the, I, we got to go back side? to the scene where they kiss. Do we? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do so we? The, no, no. I mean, it is. We do need to talk about this. I mean, the uh, you know the Borg Queen, like we said, like she doesn't. She's the main villain, or rather, the personification sure. of the main villain, right? But she doesn't. She doesn't function like like Khan or like Chang. She's not manipulating a plot. She's not. You know. She's really just. You know, the Borg are off doing their Borg thing, you know, relentlessly, and she's there to crack right. data and they, open. She was, right? at a writing standpoint, They uh, Braga and Moore were having trouble writing the Borg as a collective, and that's when they came up with uh, the Borg Queen, because, I mean... The Borg are like worker bees. There would be a queen bee. Yeah. So, Mom, what were your thoughts? What did you want to say well, about this? I just this thought scene? it was very strange. When she blew on his, the skin and you could see the hair standing up, it was like, 
oh my gosh. It's like the opposite yeah. of body horror, right? It's it's a real, it's a genuine like body, the body horror stuff, all the stuff about poking in the eyes and things like that. You you feel it in mm-hmm. your body, right? Because you go, oh God, I, I know what that would feel like. Yeah. And there you go, oh, I know what that feels like. Everybody knows what it feels like to have the wind blow on their on their arm or, or, or better get a person, yeah. you know, Brent Spiner sells it. Oh yeah. 100%. With his, was that good for you? <laughs> I know when she said that, I thought, Oh my word. Yeah. I can't believe they got that past the censors. All she did was blow on his skin. So you think, you think they actually no. engage in coitus? I do. I, I, Ow. well, when an Android loves a Borg queen, <laughs> Um, they have a special hug, and uh, sort of like in uh, oh, what was that? A lot of no, movies have no, sex no, spe- special hug. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Where they're in Florida, it's the old mint people, and the people coming in, and they have the pods in the swimming pool. Cocoon, yes, cocoon, cocoon. cocoon when when she has cocoon. sex with him, and it's just a flash. I don't, I don't remember oh, that yeah. in cocoon. Yeah. Are you sure this wasn't the porn no, parody? No, of it was in cocoon. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I I think to sell the lie that he has turned, there has to have been a little borgy panky. He sleeps with <laughs> he sleeps with her. He sleeps with her just to maintain his cover. It's like a James Bond thing. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Oh my gosh. Did you like my Borgy Panky? <laughs> Borgy Panky, yeah. I think. But but does she? I mean, that thing she's sitting in—it's just a solid piece of. Body. Well, it, it. I'm gonna get a little crass for a second, but it opens from the top. I mean, I'm assuming it opens from the bottom too. But for what reason? Oh boy. Well, I mean, oh boy, what, there's. Is there any? Data is fully functioning. Don't forget that. I know. What we're touching up against here is the reason of, like, why is the Borg Queen... Horny? Well, <laughs> horny, but also... Con- <laughs> but, yeah, but why is she horny? Why does she conform to standard fi- human ideas of physical attractiveness in many ways, despite being, you know... I mean, why why is she kind of like this cross between, like, a dominatrix and uh, a, a H.R. Giger alien, you know? Yeah, and yeah. the board, you know, It's because she's... Her job here is to seduce, right? On a physical yeah. level, and, you know? And you wonder if, if that's... You know, if Borg Queens always are like that, or... Yeah, but it's like Jean-Luc says. It wasn't enough that you assimilated me. I had to give myself freely to the Borg. To you. You flatter yourself. That's why they wanted Lacutus, yeah. And that's, you know, that maybe that's why. Yeah. That's where it leads me to that the Borg Queen we see here, the Borg Queen that is seen in Voyager, both actors who play her there, and then the Borg Queen that we're going to eventually get in Picard. Spoilers, but if you watch the trailer, you see it. And by this point, the entire series will be out. So if you haven't watched it, it's your own fault. Um, <laughs> it's all the same being. I feel like the Borg have the technology to recreate because they definitely keep hiring actors who have an Alice Krieg vibe and feel to 
how they look. It's not like it's not like it's Marina Sirtis and then um, uh, uh, Gase McFadden is playing it. Two women, but two very different looking women. Like, yeah. they, they get the same idea. So the Borg Queen is like an idea, right? She's a manifestation of the collective, right? So, into into a something that can interact with creatures that that need a, a single person to interact, right? And maybe all mm-hmm. this is explained in Voyager, and I'll eventually mm-hmm. get to it, and I'll report back to you guys mm-hmm. on it. But you it's guys prob- probably not worth it. Um, I'm I'm in it now. We're almost done with season two, and it's getting a little better. But it's still the worst Star Trek I've ever watched. Do you do you know who plays the Borg Queen in in, in Star Trek uh, Voyager? Well, it's Alex Krieg for the ending, but who's the middle one? Uh, Susanna Thompson, who plays Moira Queen. What is it yeah, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that makes me excited now. I can't wait to see yeah, her again. Yeah, right, she's, she's a great, good actor. She? she was just she in is. something else I watched, and I was like, oh, hey, it's Moira Queen. What was it? Can't remember. Um, oh, that's cool. And then it's a new yeah. actor for uh, Picard. Which is weird because, like, I mean, Alex Krieg's right there. Bring her back. I kind of almost wish that they would have leaned into that, right? Like, that every time you see a new Borg queen after another one's been blown up, she was very physically different. Yeah, I mean, that would have been... Like the doctor, right? Like, it has to be... Like, like a, re- just, but it's like the a same. new body. A new body has been given this programming and we're off. Right, right? and it's the same programming, 100%. I wish... I, I, I feel like the Rick Berman of it kind of does that and budgetary constraints and the writers of Voyager not being very smart. They kind of painted them into this corner of keeping it ambiguous on whether or not it is the same entity. I mean, God, like the Borg itself, Data even asked it like, are you like the original Borg? Are you, I mean, the Borg itself was originally supposed to be, if you remember the episode of Next Generation Conspiracy. Right. Yeah, that was what was. Those were the Borg, the little nubbins that go in the back of the, the neck. Those were the Borg. And then all of a sudden they went, crap, they're really expensive to do. Let's throw a bunch of garbage on people, spray paint it black, and that's our Borg now. Yeah. And even in that, like, the Borg have babies in in the very, in Q-Who. Yeah. We see, like, a Borgified baby. They haven't really established that they assimilate and they do all these other things. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument, and I've heard people make it, that the Borg are ruined by this movie, right? By the idea of there being a Borg queen and that if you kill the Borg queen, everybody else dies, like the king vampire, right? But I just don't see how you could make this movie and have and maintain the dramatic tension with just just being a a voice. Just drones or just a voice, yeah. Um, well, also, uh, I mean, if you watched Enterprise, they didn't all die. Oh, yeah, well, there's that. There are, there's the explosion of the Borg cube that sends four Borg to uh, the middle of the Antarctic, and they aren't found for another hundred and whatever uh, Enterprise takes place. Did you, did you notice, speaking of, you know, the Borg, Borg Queen's cryptic explanations of her nature, right? Are you singular? Are you ball? Oh, I am all, I, I'm beyond that, you know. It's very, did you catch what she says when she's first introduced? I am the beginning, the end, the one who is many. A little bit of a God, a so God what, complex. Well, I guess this answers Kirk's question. What does God need with a starship to assimilate yeah, it? Yeah, to assimilate it.
Data looks like he's going to blow up the Phoenix. He The quantum torpedoes, first time mentioning quantum instead of photon. I, aren't, weren't there quantum torpedoes on Deep Space Nine, and this is the first time we hear them here? Absolutely. The Defiant is, has quantum torpedoes. Right. And if you're wondering how quantum torpedoes are different than photon torpedoes, they're better. They're just better. <laughs> <laughs> they're white instead of red. That's all you need to know. It's a different color. Watch your future's end. So he fires three, they miss. Data! Data gets his 80s quip line. Resistance is futile. He breaks the uh, gas, well, I forget what it was. The, the, MacGuffin, the green stuff. The MacGuffin gas yeah. that uh, kills all the Borg because it destroys organic material. Right. And Colin, you, you asked me before what I think gave this movie a PG-13 rating. If it wasn't the scene with the implant popping out onto Picard's face, it was definitely the melting of the Borg Queen. Yeah. That, that was horrific. That is, a, that is a bit, yeah, a bit graphic and scary, yeah. Good Lord. Do you think Picard knew that Data had not turned? No, I really think he didn't know. Hmm. Interesting. He says so at the end. He goes, Strange. Part of me is... Sorry, she's dead. She was unique. She brought me closer to humanity than I ever thought possible. And for a time, I was tempted by her offer. How long a time? 0.68 seconds, sir. I don't know. I, I, I had mixed feelings about whether or not he knew. If he whether did, he really did. carried it off well. Yeah. For an android, that is nearly an eternity. There's a small callback to Descent here. Is there? Colin, you said that they kind of ignore it. How does uh, how does Picard make sure the Borg Queen is dead? Oh, he snaps her spine. Uh, Mm-hmm. At, at specifically the third vertebrae. Uh, oh. <laughs> in the episode, one of the Borg drones says to Picard and the crew, biological organism, human, sever spinal cord below third vertebrae, death is immediate. Yeah, I so, absolutely guarantee you that's a coincidence. <laughs> no. There's no way. Picard's real smart. No, but what that <laughs> moment, I did notice that that moment when he does snap it, that it's Terminator? No, they there's a they that the film and Patrick Stewart take a moment to let that be the end mm-hmm. of the revenge quest. Yep. That silences something in Picard and and lets him really I mean he's obviously he, he's he gets his come to Jesus moment with Lily and and it has is better from then, but there's something that releases in him after he gets to physically and the Borg threat. Well, and I, I think his, it's, with his bare hands. And up until that point, it was the Borg that was yeah. the thing. As soon as he realizes it wasn't just the Borg, it was this queen. Because we see her in the flashbacks of Himus Locutus. Remember, he, he says, but that, that Borg cube was destroyed. And her talking down to him with the... You think in such three-dimensional terms. But, uh, you know, it's, again, the hand wave you have. We're not going to explain how this is the same Borg queen that was on the Borg cube in Best of Both Worlds. It's, it's a hand wavy, it, it, but I think that's what makes him go when he snaps the spinal column. He's like, I got the thing... 
the specific thing that made me a Borg. Yeah, well, that's that we we kind of glanced over that, but there's a brief retcon that that the Borg Queen was there mm-hmm. and the wanted. So that that makes that makes this chronologically then the second Borg Queen that yeah. we see because because that that cube Borg was queen super blown up. Yeah. So first contact has to happen. They've done warp. They go back. Oh wait 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 wait! It's the best thing when they're taking off. No, not as dense as the moon is. No, I enjoy the continuing of the uh, Neil Armstrong uh, legacy that there is apparently Lake Armstrong. Well, yeah, on the moon. Yeah, you. Would. And also when he says engage, and he and Gordian and, and Riker look at each other like, "Oh yeah. my god!" I and can't Riker go. This. I feel like Riker, like after everything settles and they're like, whoo, we defeated the board, da da da. You'll never guess what Zephyrin Cochran oh, yeah. said <laughs> when it was time to take off. It's going to blow your mind. I do appreciate um, among the, the other things that they just run with and don't spend a lot of time justifying that's just Riker and Jordy or his crew now. Yeah, who would have <laughs> been his crew before him? Lily. Presumably Lily. one would have been Lily, and the other one would have been uh, Joe, who was blown up by that Borg, I guess. Or the guy in the bar that he tells to go home when we're first introduced to them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, be. they fix that bar super-duper quick. <laughs> it gets blown uh, up in that ta- attack, and then Deanna and Cochran are in it, presumably later that night. But they have well, that priorities. Seem, it, they have yeah, to it does have seem to be pretty... <laughs> Pretty central to that community. Now, yeah. did you guys see where um, the Phoenix was shot? No. S- and what it was? It was a that's, nu- that's a nuclear missile yeah. that they, at a museum, of, at a decommissioned ICBM station. Oh, that was the physical shooting of the it. Actual, gotcha. the, yeah, the, the actual... Um, so all the stuff when they're... When, um, Picard and Data are down there, and they're... I must have seen this ship hundreds of times in the Smithsonian, but I was never able to touch it. Sir, does tactile contact alter your perception of the Phoenix? Oh, yes. For humans, touch can connect you to an object in a very personal way, make it seem more real. I am detecting imperfections in the titanium casing, temperature variations in the fuel manifold, but it is no more real to me now than it was a moment ago. Would you three like to be alone? And all of that stuff is a, it's a real ICBM that they put, they dress the front of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't, I don't think it has a warhead in it anymore. I certainly I hope it, not. <laughs> but it was, but it was a real base wow. that apparently the people who were stationed at the base when it was decommissioned asked if they could turn it into a museum. And that's where they shot. It's the Titan, um, the Titan. rocket. Yeah, right. The Titan Missile Museum in Tucson, just outside of Tucson, Arizona. Is that why the Titan becomes 
Why? Why? That's a Riker's eventual ship. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's a little like wink and nod to them. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. But apparently, it was uh, a really difficult to shoot in because it was so tight. Hmm. But it was like this gorgeous. You know, they didn't have to build that set at all. Sure. It's all you know. They had to dress it, obviously. But uh, but that's nothing pretty... compared to building a whole set. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to talk about the Steppenwolf of it all. It's a great gag, right? That and the Roy Orbison's the first time pop music appears in a Star Trek movie, or at least on the soundtrack, right? Sure. But it is 2063. And we're still listening to Roy Orbison and Steppenwolf. This guy, this guy is like obsessed with a hundred year old music. It's like if it's like if I was like, oh, I gotta have my John Philip Sousa. I yeah. gotta, you know. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's a little silly. It's, it's obviously, like your father. You know, he will listen to 60s and 50s music. No, that, but what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is if it was like our father like really liked to listen to Scott Joplin, because this guy didn't grow up in the, the 1950s and 60s, it's the 2060s. I see what you're saying, yeah. If he's, if he's what, 50 years old? Yeah. He, he's, he's, uh, he's my kid's age. At this point, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Jeez. He's probably born in the 2010s. Oh, you can, you, one thing you've got to, good music is good music. Exactly. And way better than trying to be like, oh, this is something really popular from 2040 that we made up, you know. No, no, yeah, no. It I never, mean, goes, that never nothing, goes well. The magic carpet ride gag works brilliantly. Yeah, it's <laughs> sure such does. a good. Are we ready for first contact? Because I have a yeah. doozy of trivia for this. Oh, okay. So That they're uh, Vulcans? Well, Yes, but specifically <laughs> the Vulcan that meets Zephyrin Cochran yeah. is grandfather to Spock. That's supposed to be Sarek's father? Mm-hmm. 100%. Character's I... name is... Hang on. Now, where is the source for this? Because I'm usually the one talking about the goofy tie-in novels. Hang on. Let me find it here. Did I not pull it? I guess I didn't. But in Star Trek 3, when they are talking about Spock's grandfather, when they say Sarek, son of whatever his name is, it's the same Sorbet. Yes, Sorbet. Uh, It's the exact same name, and the timeline kind of matches. He's a guy in about his 30s, looking like, or Vulcan 30s. Do they say this guy's name at some point? In the credits, he is li- he is listed as. Ah, there we go. Again, if you have ever watched Enterprise, when they do the Mirror Universe episode, they got James Cromwell back to do this scene again, except instead of when he does the Vulcan salute and then he goes to shake his hand, instead of shaking his hand, he shoots him with a shotgun and then they raid the ship. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Then that's why the Vulcans and the Terrans do not get along. I'm like, oh, Okie dokie, but it's shot for shot the same scene up until him blowing him away with the shotgun. It's so wild. Do you think Cochran changed when he first met the Vulcan for no longer in it for the money? Did it change his whole attitude toward why he did what he did? I mean, I think that's what we're supposed to get, right? Is that he is this person and he will become the person that they know or mm-hmm. some or something close enough to that for history to inherit. And so I think it's a bit of a comment on how we never really know people from history Mm -hmm. as people 
they have to be constructs, right? Yeah. Um, but also that nobody is the same person their whole life. That too. Um, I mean, uh, Riker says... Someone once said, don't try to be a great man, just be a man, and let history make its own judgments. It's rhetorical nonsense. Who said that? You did. Ten years from now. I think they feel they know the Zephyr and Cochran from ten years from now, from helping uh, create Starfleet, all that stuff. This is the broken, weird version. And we get that version, again, on Enterprise. There's Maybe in the first episode, we get James Cromwell as, like, Zephyrin Cochran giving a speech uh, that they're watching at the Academy or something. Somewhere in there, they did that. I remember that. Yeah, I think I think that might even be the first episode. Right, Broken Arrow, maybe. I had a note. Are they able to go back in time because half the Enterprise is Borged? No, it's just the hand-wavy science, 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 fiction, the fiction, over. fiction. Let's go back, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and if anyone else was watching the sky the same moment as Lily, they had to have freaked out. All of a sudden, there's this giant hole in the sky for a second, and then it just goes away. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Right. I mean, they also have, they they kind of hand wave, you know, oh, we, we use the moon's gravitational so the Vulcans wouldn't see us. Air war. But that's fine. Signature. That's fine. You know what I mean? It's like, that one doesn't bother me as much as the time travel one. Just be like, Jordy's just like, well, we got to wrap this shit up. So uh, we just copied, <laughs> copied and pasted what the board did. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> We're just, just going to reverse engineer it. See, we hit control yeah. C and then we're going to put in the computer control V and it's going to work out just fine. But I think it works for me because it's this film really understands what parts of the story we need and what parts we don't. Sure. You know, and it, it doesn't waste our time with anything we don't need. It's it's a really brisk and efficient film. What is it like? It's two hours. How long is it? An hour it's and fifty. Two, it's it's not it's not two hours. A hundred and eleven minutes. Um, okay, we're nice we're, brisk. We're slicing hairs here. It's an hour and fifty one minutes long. I, I I know, but you know what? For for a tentpole franchise film. This to these days that would seem short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, 100%. New, the new Bond. I believe the new Bond movie is like two hours and forty-five minutes long. I will be waiting till video for that. <laughs> um, you know, and just there's no fat on this movie. Yo, yeah, there's nothing. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It is lean, and everything does what it needs to do. There's no wasted time, but it also doesn't. It doesn't feel like like a sketch. I mean, it's it's a it's just a really balanced, fun exciting, good movie. And I'm so worried it's all downhill from here. I just feel like this is the last time, the last movie I'm going to enjoy this much. Yeah, spoiler alert. It's going to be the last next-gen movie I'm going to enjoy this much. Boof. I think I think it's maybe the last one I enjoy this much at all. I, <laughs> but I, um, you know, I don't hate the Kelvin universe as much as you do. Nah. But I don't know. I'd be interested to see. Uh, you know, th- this is also the last movie... Of all of these movies we're going to talk about that I've seen a lot. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. From here on out, it's movies I've seen once, maybe twice. I've seen Insurrection. I've given Insurrection more than its fair shake. Uh, Nemesis, I've probably seen three times in the theater, once mm-hmm. in video, and once a couple of years ago. I'm like, maybe it's not as bad as I... Oh, it is. Now that we've sort of talked through the whole film, I do have a fun anecdote I uncovered. Mm-hmm. Which was um, that uh, after the film ha- was opening weekend, 
Jonathan Frakes, you know, you know, making a movie is murder, right? I mean, it's just you it's it's 16 hour days for a year and a half right. if you're the director, right? And so he's he goes on vacation in the Berkshires and they're like he's like in a barn and just totally like separate, but he gets a phone call and it's DeForest Kelly. <gasps> oh. Now he had he had only met like him very briefly. I guess DeForest Kelly was actually neighbors with Rick Berman. Just they lived in the same area in Los Angeles. Huh. So he gets Jonathan Frakes' contact information via Rick Berman, and he basically just calls him to say he went and saw the movie. It's He heard how successful it's doing. He loved the movie, and just to congratulate him. And that is how two films after he's left the franchise, I'm still going to gush about DeForest Kelly because what a great guy, right? What a, and, what and, a that fr- and Jonathan Frakes talks about, like, uh, the quote I saw was like, and I carry that with me to this day. You know, just to have somebody reach out. And, I mean, right? Yeah. Talk about uh, a validation on a different level than the reviews, than the box office. Yeah. I mean, that is, well, that is some high a, praise. I, isn't he just a nice yeah. little Southern boy? Uh, yeah. He is. Absolutely. I love that he did that. That just, God, that endears me to him so much more. Let me go back to something you yeah. noted. When Data and Picard leave the engineering section where just a few minutes before Data has broken the glass and all that gas comes out of there. Mm-hmm. Would when, when they left, both sides of it were green. Wouldn't one of them have not been green because they'd let the gas out? I think the Green is also the coloring of the container. Unless it's just bad, uh, you know, production design that they made the container green and put a, a, like a Globo or something in there to make it uh, almost like a psych inside. That's probably true because when the gas came out, it wasn't green. It was gray, grayish brown. It was grayish green, yeah. Depends on your TV's tint, but it was green (laughs) on mine. Okay, so uh, that is Star Trek First Contact. I don't think I have anything else to say about this wonderful movie, except that I love it. Yeah, it's a great movie. It really is. And I, you know, I guess I think I went back watching it worried. I was a little trepidatious that I might not enjoy it as much as I remember. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, it had been 10 years. And boy, I just enjoyed the hell out of this movie. Yeah, I was just, just like, oh, yeah, this is. This it really earns its reputation as as one of one of the high points of the whole series, the whole franchise. Um, it definitely reinvigorated yeah. next gen. At the yeah, I'm, I mean, if it's for some reason you're listening to this without having seen this movie, you should go see this movie. One hundred percent. It's it is well, who the hell knows by the time mm-hmm. uh, this episode comes out? But currently, it is streaming on Paramount Plus. But some of the streaming sites, <clears throat> Peacock, are really falling behind. Have you seen that? Like, so they're releasing Halloween Kills in theaters and on Peacock tomorrow. People on yeah. the Peacock site that says that on Twitter, are like, hey, uh, I have tickets for tonight's showing. Is it also going to be tonight? And Peacock directly is like, thanks for letting, thanks for reaching out to us. Not a f-ing clue. <laughs> 
<laughs> like pretty much that's what they write. They're like, no idea. Maybe. Whether it's like whether it's like dropping at midnight, they don't know. Yeah, they don't know if it's dropping at midnight, if it's dropping earlier. Like, stay tuned. Keep I think one they kept writing like, check your app. I'm like, you guys don't know when this movie is dropping. I guarantee the people at HBO Max, like with the Suicide Squad and all those, they know the time, the rough time that that's going to drop on HBO Max. Well, they may know. They may be in the check your app. May, it may be an attempt at like marketing, like, hey, keep an eye. And while you're there, why not watch Ed Helms's Rutherford Falls new series or Rutherford Falls? Which actually was not bad. It was. We only watched a couple episodes, but it was. All it right. gets better as it goes along. Um, it it it's a rough start, much like any Mike Shore show. But yeah, and it probably has the roughest start of any Mike Shore show. But I really enjoyed it, and I'm excited for season two, which has already been greenlit. Okay, so now that we have gushed over this wonderful movie, we have some questions. I I can go ahead and say I'm pretty sure I know what the uh, answer to question one is. Is this a good movie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good movie. Is this good Star Trek? Yes. It is. You know, I think think when I was worried about maybe not liking it, maybe it not living up, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the drift into action adventure, Mm -hmm. that these become action movies. And this is an action movie in many, many ways, right? Yeah. But during that last scene, the first contact scene, when, when, that great main Goldsmith theme is playing, and the action is all in service. It comes back to being in service of saving this very Star Trek moment. 100%. This, uh, this wide-eyed wonder at the potential of humanity to grow into a wider place in the universe mm-hmm. and to embrace, uh, like, diverse, exciting, you know, place in the galaxy yeah and to explore and to learn and to reach out in peace and i i think that part of star trek is as well served in those moments of this film of course since that is the near the ending uh, by the film as a whole as it is at any point in the franchise i couldn't agree more i mean it yeah it's it's actiony it's horror-esque but it still has its roots in star trek case in point any lily and picard scene Feels more like yeah. Star Trek than an action movie. Yeah. Would you recommend this as uh, someone's introduction to Star Trek? That's a tough one. No, I think so. Some of the people that reviewed it said it was it was that kind of movie that you could you could have somebody watch it that hadn't seen any other Star Trek and they would understand what was going on. Okay. I think they fill in everything you need to know about about the backstory and it does you know like i said it, we it kind of serves as a direct sequel to best of both worlds yeah. but i i don't think you i guess i'm guessing the bean didn't watch this with you no no interest at all and also i think this would be a little too scary for her wait wait did you tell her adam scott was <laughs> she doesn't know who Adam. we haven't we haven't uh, uh delved into parks and rec yet so she doesn't know who adam scott is. no but she watched the good place didn't she oh that's right yeah i did not tell her that she would not have cared yeah. <laughs> We watched Knives Out, and I was like, really? It's, really, it's really funny. Yeah, it's funny. And both Danny and the Bean were like, it's not funny. People die, like, in funny ways. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's funny. And and uh, the Bean was actually talking about this morning, because uh, we were listening to Sirius, and they had Daniel Craig on talking about Bond. And he uh, and I was like, oh, you recognize that's the 
guy from Knives Out. She's like, oh, that movie. You said it was funny, and it wasn't funny, and it was just violent. And and I was like, violent? <laughs> what are you talking? I can show you violent, kid. Uh, like I thought they would both enjoy it, and neither one of them. And so did. you showed her a clockwork horn. <laughs> yes, you want to see violence? Here we go. You want to see eye stuff? And you said, "Yeah, you want to oh, see yeah, eye horror?" Right. Here we go. Do I think this is a good intro to Trek? I do. Okay, yeah. You know, now that we're we're talking about it, yeah, I, I would agree definitely. I mean, you you know, there's stuff you're that you're not going to, but even even the Vulcan reveal, it's like, and is there any? I mean, unless you're really dragging somebody who's completely unfamiliar with the concept they're going to go oh yeah this is the pointy eye gear pointy ear guys they're important in star trek i know that right you're going to be like oh it's it's the, the spock or or even if you don't you just go oh okay this obviously has some sort of significance because the the reveal of the pointy ears and then the entire bridge crew looks at them and is like oh but wouldn't they know that oh yeah they know it Somebody in that bridge crew looked surprised that it was a Vulcan. I can't remember who, but I'm like... They weren't surprised it was a Vulcan. They're like, oh, I didn't know it was Spock's grandfather. <laughs> you know, the only, part, lost the, time. the only part of that ship, of the Vulcan ship, that was real was the platform they made for him to come down. Everything else was mm-hmm. completely computer-generated. Yes, yeah. and this is where the computer ger- generation of this movie shows real hard. Oh, I did, it didn't bother me. I think, it, I think it worked fine, you know? Did not work for me. Kirk's dead, uh, so we don't have to do Kirk drift status. But do we feel like the action-adventure Picard is drifting away from the thoughtful and cerebral Picard of the series? Yes. Picard is now slowly becoming Indiana Jones. Now, it doesn't bother me in this film because he's having a massive PTSD episode throughout the film. 100%. I think we're going to have a little less justification for... uh, swashbuckling Picard in the future. But here he God damn it's, it. <laughs> it it all kind of fits in to, you know, he's having he's having this traumatic event relived and 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 again like I I can't say how much I enough how much I love the way that the film sneaks that up on you. Yeah, and 100%. It, and and you could say 99% it, it, one time. <laughs> It, it keeps tricking you into thinking it's resolve, it's it's steadfast leadership, it's determination, and then you you get to a point where you look back and all those things you realize it was those, but it was also obsession, it was also vengeance, it was also an inability to deal with the trauma, um, and also the fact that when he has his explosion, the nose, yeah, yeah, you're surprised by it, but also at the same time. I mean, it's hard to say. I've watched this movie more than half a dozen times. I, I'm trying to remember if when I watched this for the first time, I went, yeah, this makes sense for where he is with his stress level with what's going on. Like like you're saying, there was a slow burn to that. That was yeah. It was surprising because we've never really seen Picard have that kind of explosion, but it's totally justified for where he is at that moment. The no's are great, but it's his speech afterwards, um, which the line must be drawn here, weirdly is a different take. Probably the only other take, because two takes Frank in the um in the trailer. It's Oh, a, is it? Yeah, it's more like the line must be drawn here. It's not, mm. you know, the line must be drawn here. No further. No. Hmm. Passionate Picard. 
So yeah, we've got some kind of swashbuckling uh, archaeology going on here. Yeah, but it didn't bother me too much. But again, it's because it's a very specific moment. Sure. It's a little like what we talked about with Kirk, right? So the, you know, in you you know the, this rebellious Kirk of Search for Spock. I mean, you know, the 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 Genesis trilogy is like Kirk having the worst year and a half of his life. <laughs> yeah. But then yeah, yeah. that becomes people's image of who he is. I think uh, we should keep it. I think we should switch it to Picard Drift Status Update for at least the next two films. Well, and then Jesus. we can switch back to Kirk Drift Status Update. Well, listen, we, in, uh, in the Kelvin universe, he is Tokyo to, drifting all over that thing. Oh, uh, in Star Trek Babies? Um, no. Uh, 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 listen, okay, what is the best moment as if we, I mean, how many times have we brought it up? In just this discussion, it well, for me. Well, does anybody? Yeah, it's Lily and Picard in the observation room. Mom, you do yours. I want to think about. I, I agree. I think that's the best scene in the film. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's it's a film full of wonderful, memorable moments. But that's one of the best scenes in all, like all of Star Trek. Yeah, and also like with whatever Mom says, if you don't say the same one, this is one of those movies where whatever you say. I'm going to go, oh, sure, yeah. I, I totally get that that is why that why that's your favorite moment in this movie because, yeah, this movie is just chock full of great moments. I think the first contact scene. Oh, which, yeah? Sure. Which just wraps up the whole movie. I mean, it's just like, yeah. what this is what it was all about. This is what we why we did all this stuff. This is why we went back in time. This is why we destroyed the board. This is this is what it was for. And it's just it when when you just see them, you see the people, and you see the the look on Lily's face, and you see the look on Cochran's face, and he goes and he takes her hand. And I thought he was gonna take her up with him to meet. But mm-hmm. he lets her go mm-hmm. and goes forward. And then it was just it was I just thought, I, I mean, I wonder how I would feel if I were actually if in that situation. What would be going through sure. my mind? Yeah. And that's the moments where Star Trek shines the most, where it can put you in the situation and make you feel mm-hmm. or question what you would feel in that moment. Yeah. That it's this science fiction show set hundreds of years in the future, and we can still relate to these characters. Yeah, I, I that is a great scene. And like I said, that's the scene that, that really sells me on this film being good Star Trek. Mm-hmm. 100%. That's right, Mom. 100%. Uh-huh. 99.5. 99.8. Uh, uh, is there anything anyone would cut from this film? Gosh, I don't really don't see anything. Maybe, uh, maybe some of the body horror, but if no, not, no, 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 you need all of it. You need all, all right, of fine. it. All right, no, I wouldn't cut anything. Fine, especially you need. You know, I'm going to tell you why you need all of it because you asked. Um, <laughs> no, because we were talking about how you know does this film work for somebody who hasn't seen other Star Trek, right? Is it a good intro to Star Trek film? All those moments of truly squick-inducing body horror, as fast and as PG-13 friendly as they are, they really tell you so much about the Borg um, that you need if you haven't seen the, the long trauma of, of the locutus assimilation and, and the danger, yeah. you know, it tells you <clears throat> so fair. much about them. I think a couple of the, I think a couple of the close-ups that they had of 
I mean, I ne- never have been able to figure out when Picard first walks into engineering to see where Data and the Queen are. It, there's a board that, that they do a close-up of his face. I don't know if we're supposed to recognize him as someone or what, but why is he following Picard? Do you remember that scene where he, he follows him behind him? The, I think he's just drone. Going. I think the drone's just going to the same place Picard is. Oh. He doesn't see Picard as a threat. Unnecessary. Picard hasn't done anything. Or he's like, hey, Lacunas, can I get an autograph? Yeah, I'm wondering if they recognize him. As, because no matter what they do to unassimilate John Luke, uh, D-Borg. there are still parts yeah. of the Borg in him. That's fair. Admiral status actor. Our favorite actor in this. I, I think I have mine. I would say Alfred okay. Woodard. She's so good in this. She's really, really Apparently, good. she said that she feels like this is one of the characters she's played who's closest to who she is in real life. I could see yeah, that. I, I could that. totally see that. Yeah. I'm going to go against uh, Captain Kirk's suggestion in the sleep inducing generations, and I'm going to nominate one Captain Picard to Admiral Status in this movie. I think this is possibly the best we're going to see from Patrick Stewart. Uh, We will get more in-depth into it, but the next time he has any kind of real challenge like this in Nemesis, dealing with a clone, uh, everybody who associated with that film has said that was the worst filming experience of their life. Hmm. So I don't think it's going to be hard in that one because I don't think anyone had a great time making that movie. Put it all on the director. But we will get into that when we get to Nemesis. Yeah. How about you, Mom? I just think James Cromwell mm-hmm. just made, was just perfect. Yeah, in he's really good, too. His interpretation of Sarah. I mean, he was just, he was just so good. And I wonder if a lot of the, like the arm flapping when he did the, the I wonder if a lot of the stuff he did was him improvising or if he was given specific directions by Mr. Frakes on what he wanted him to do. I bet there's a mix. It, feel, it feels like he definitely was being allowed to be make big choices and, and go and do fun things and, and then just... Yeah, well, with the hips and when yeah. he's dancing and that. Yeah, much like with uh, Best Moment, I don't disagree with either one of your choices. This movie is chock full of great performances. There's There's no wrong answer. On this, if one of you had said Alex Krieg, I would have been like, yeah, sure. Alex Krieg is great in this movie. Mm. I mean, this is pretty obvious what the recommended episode pairings are. It's the best of both worlds, part one and two. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Or if you can get your hands on it, back probably 10 years ago, Paramount did a really smart thing and took this unification, redemption, and one other one, four big, huge moment in Next Generation history episodes took deleted scenes and made them in, all into movies. I own the best of both worlds as one hour and a half long episode with never before seen scenes. It's up converted to 1080. It's really cool. Um, so if you can get your hands on that, that's the way to watch this to have uh, you know double feature. Oh yeah, but yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's the it's the you know it functions as a as a pair. Well, I would I did go back and and rewatch that, and those episodes really mm-hmm. hold up. They're really really great. Yeah, I kind of I'm kind of sad we never got to see uh, Shelby ever again because she was she was she's, she's all over those tie-in novels. I tell you. Oh, I'm sure she is, but I wanted to see the she actor. she winds up serving on the Titan. What? 
Is she the first officer on the Titan? She's his XO on the Titan. Wow. That's awesome. Wait, so there's a possibility we'll see Shelby on Lower Decks because Riker's still out there being a character on Lower Decks. So season three, make it happen. Okay. We're not going to rank. I mean, we've done two Next Generation movies. Surprise. This one gets above Generations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's It's pretty easy. Uh, so that's right. everything we have to say about first contact. Yes, I think so. Yeah, are we sure? Because that means the next one we have to review. I know. Is, now we have to stop talking about first contact and talk about the rest of them. You know, I okay. So mm-hmm. I uh, on the next where no mom has gone before. I I am. There's part of me that's hoping I'm going to go back. I don't think I've seen Insurrection since the theater. And I don't think I'm going to like it as much as this movie. But in fact, I know I'm not going to like it as much as the movie. No. But I think I might like it more than I remember. Oh, no, Callan. I have terrible news for you. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. Because oh, it, I don't right remember now. any of it. So. Oh, it's. Did you, the, when did we you started see it? talking about doing that, <clears throat> the one movie that stood out in my mind that I remembered, and you know I have a horrible yeah. memory for th- was was. Um, Voyage Home. The one with the whales. <laughs> the, the one, one with, with the, the whales. Mom, is it possible you haven't seen Insurrection? It's no. a very good possibility. I think oh, this is one we all saw together. I know that, Mom, you and I saw Nemesis together and walked out of there being like, well, that's a thing we just experienced together. <laughs> oh, well, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to watch it quickly so that I can know if I've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if, I, if I have not seen it, I'm going to have to watch, probably watch it about four more times. <laughs> I will be able to. to <laughs> I love your commitment to, to having. I mean, I I get through one viewing and I'm good. I just love. Yeah, but see, your your guy, your your minds go in a different direction from mine. Yeah, you see this. You know, I'm mean, like I said, I've got to go back now and watch First Contact to remember the the the. And for, what was that thing you? Some angle or something, some shooting angle. Dutch angle. So yeah, I have no idea what now. that is. Hang on, look at me now in the in our chat. Okay. It would be like this. That's a Dutch angle, and it's supposed to give like a feeling of unease. That Uh-oh. it's like oh, almost at like a forty. Like there's a specific setting on the camera. It's like a thirty degree angle. Hmm. I think Spielberg likes him too. But the problem is a lot of television now just does it to make it look cool and different and weird. And I'm just like, stop doing it. That's not you're not using it for the right purpose. I'm gonna send you a, a good explainer video, Mom. Yes. That will, you'll get it. Okay. And it was a Dutch filmmaker that came up with it, right? That's why we call it a Dutch angle. You I you know I think I it do not. I think it was some Dutch remember. filmmaker. Uh the Dutch tilt. Dutch angle, also known as the Dutch tilt, canted angle or oblique angle, is a type of camera shot which involves setting the camera at an angle on its roll axis so the shot is composed of vertical lines at an angle to the side of the frame, or so that the horizon of the shot is not parallel with the bottom of the camera frame. The Dutch tilt is strongly associated with the German movie scene German. during the Expressionist movement, which used the Dutch angle exclusively, which is probably where the name comes from. <laughs> okay. So would you like the etymology of Dutch angle now that we're here? Yeah. It's going to make a great bonus. So I, when I said German, I thought, I thought, cause you know, the German word for Germany is Deutsch. Deutschland. Deutsch angle. Yeah. So Deutsch and Dutch can kind of, I thought that might, no, it's, um, 
the usage of the word Dutch in this context does not signify a Dutch origin of the film technique, but rather uses the word as a pejorative adjective, which gained currency in English following the Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 17th century. Similar word combinations include Dutch wife, a sex doll or prostitute, Dutch courage, boldness while drunk, double Dutch, gibberish, Dutch agreement, a drunken agreement, Dutch leave, defecting, and Dutch treat, which refers to paying for yourself. So in other words, it's kind of racist against Dutch people. Oh, (laughs) shit. Apologies to all Dutch people. I'm so sorry. And also, retroactively, all the times I bitch about Dutch angles in superhero movies. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm not going to be able to call it that anymore. Well, it's sometimes called the German angle but that's due to its much popularity better. in silent era German films. Well, okay. The next time we get to one, I'll call it a German angle. Okay, so next month we will be reviewing the uh, F. Murray Abraham vehicle, uh, <laughs> Star Trek Insurrection. God. No. Was he in that? Oh, oh he's the main oh, villain. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I do remember something about Donna Murphy's in it, too. Oh, and Donna Murphy looks wonderful in it. Donna, you'll, uh, you'll recognize her. She's a big Broadway star. And she's she's really good in the movie, but also they super do. I mean, she's she's a beautiful woman, but they glam the crap out of Donna Murphy in this movie. Um, okay, so that'll be next month. And uh, so, Colin... Where can people find you on subspace Twitter if they'd like to? I am at role of Colin Ryan. Okay. Uh, I am at not Ryan Casey on Twitter. Uh, you can also tweet at the podcast directly at where no mom pod. Uh, mom, you're saying uh, Twitter anonymous. Because because you're not even on there. Uh, So next month, you'll see us for uh, Star Trek Insurrection. And uh, Mom, if you'll do the honors. We have been and ever shall be. Your podcast.